two eyes, huh? Do you understand the game a bit? Yeah, have a look. I'm not saying anything to you in particular because I know you're not too accurate with your reporting. That, that's what you okay, paid so for. You're it. saying I should resign. So you're saying I should resign. I think that's you should, your opinion. Yeah. Is that right? That's my opinion. Fine. Are you going to resign then? No, of course I'm not going to resign. I simplify things next time. <laughs> Welcome, one and all, to a very, very, very special edition of the National Curriculum. It is the ESPN X TNC. World Cup preview special hosted by our amazing friends at Ultra Football, the home of football in Melbourne. I'm assured that they've got one in the Shadow Realm up there in Sydney as well. Haven't been, I'm sure it's very nice, but we're at the Melbourne one, the best one for a very special World Cup preview. My name is Joey Lynch as the only actual EMSPN uh, contracted employee on the podcast. I'm hosting this edition. I am joined by Lockie Flanagan, Josh Parrish, and Teo Pelizzeri on the couch next to me. Anna Harrington, friend of the show, member of the Far Post podcast, is going to be along as well to discuss a few things. We are going to be joined by Kate Gill, co-chief executive of the PFA, to talk about the Socceroos human rights video and human rights in Qatar in the lead into the tournament. But it's a big tournament. I'm, I'm off on Monday, I'm on a plane to Abu Dhabi and then Doha. I'm looking forward to that. We've got some big plans for the World Cup, which you've got a bit of a sneak preview of on the weekend. We'll talk about those a little bit more as well. But, boys, thank you. Well, we should also say it's Teo in person. He has escaped the Shadow Realm. He has flown down from Sydney to join us. Just, I can touch him. I can feel it. It's actually, there's a, a teleportal between the two ultra footballs. Ah. Uh, so, <laughs> so that's how I was able to get down here. Okay, well... Whatever black magic Tao is down here, Tao. Awesome to see you, mate. How are you? No, good. And looking forward to the World Cup. I mean, we were just discussing off air whether or not it was an appetising tournament opener between <laughs> Qatar and Ecuador. And then we remembered, oh, yeah, but the last one was Russia versus Saudi Arabia. So this is kind of just an upgrade. All right, famous TNC tangent. Best ever World Cup opener. Oh. Surely it's South Africa we need, getting the win. We need dummy here. To, yeah. yeah look, but South out Africa of getting the win? No. A win for Africa? No. It was Gold, a, Bafana, Bafana. It was Gold a, for Africa? It was a draw. So I would say it was oh, Sen- yeah. Senegal beating France in 2002. Yeah, yeah. Senegal, France. And, France. and I, w- I definitely won't mention 1998, <laughs> Lockie. Yeah. No, we don't talk about that. <laughs> don't any subsequent see, World Cup. home too soon. <laughs> see, that goal has just burned into it so much in my mind that I just see that as a win for South Africa, even if it was a draw in the end. It was such I mean, an had amazing Had they won goal. that game, they would have got out of the group. But I guess that's the mm. thing about the hosts of Group A that uh, lead us off here because, gee. Well, yeah, we'll talk about Group A, but we've got to introduce the other guys in the catch, Tao, first. I know you're excited, but Josh, how are you, mate? I'm very bitter that you've pulled rank here, but aside from that, very well. Very excited to chat World Cup. And Lucky Flanagan, two in a row, two shows in a row. I know, crazy. These these things can happen. Uh, pleased to be decked out in my most appropriate attire for a World Cup podcast, wearing some uh, post-ironic NSL casual wear. <laughs> That's what you want to see. Lock Go with the South Melbourne Gunners. Just remember, mate, you've achieved nothing, so don't get ahead of yourself. <laughs> true. Well, true. we'll see. We'll be speaking to Kate Gillen a bit with Anna Harrington. Interested to see whether you're joining us for that chat if you flee the room when your bully Anna Harrington <laughs> uh, enters the podcast. But we will now... Move into the actual action itself. We, don't worry, we're going to give you our predictions and all that at certain points and in the end, but we're going to get into it step by step, methodical as TNC always is. Group A Qatar, Ecuador, Senegal, and the Netherlands. It's going to be Qatar versus Ecuador to start the World Cup. Initially, it wasn't going to be, but then what was it? Just like a couple of months out, they realized, oh, 
normally it's the hosts that play the first game of the tournament, isn't it? So they rearranged everything. It's now a standalone game, one game, one one game on that day. Qatar versus Ecuador, and we'll start. I guess we'll we'll move on to the heavy hitters, but Qatar. They're hosting. It's their first ever World Cup. They've qualified for their first ever World Cup by virtue of hosting the damn thing. Although they are Asian Cup champions, FIFA and UEFA has helped them out by giving them a large swathe of warm-up friendlies in the building to this tournament. Josh, what do you make of the host nation? Well, it's the only the second time this has ever happened that a, uh, a country has made their World Cup debut as hosts um, because Italy literally couldn't get to Uruguay and 1930 or whatever it was. So I guess Uruguay counts as well, but that was the first one. Um, Qatar, I mean, they're coming off an Asian Cup win. That was a while ago now. I don't know if they peaked too soon, uh, but we know they've got some technically accomplished players. Al Moez Ali is a goal machine, um, but they're going to be up against it. That's for, for sure. They're going to sit very, very deep and try and hit and transition, which is a pretty sustainable formula in international football. But... It is a wide open group. They got a pretty kind draw. I think they could uh, get some points here. I've been thinking about that. So obviously, obviously the Qataris are best on the counter. It's how they won the Asian Cup. Opening game of a World Cup, packed house full of home fans that want to see Qatar on the world stage. This is our moment. Can you really sit back on the counter and just let Ecuador have all the ball in that? So is there going to be external pressure to just put on a show in the opening game and, you know, politics and, you know, people don't externally, you're not supposed to interfere in football, but is there, are they going to actually be, especially in the opening game, are they going to be allowed to play that sort of way? Can they play that sort of way? I don't think the fan pressure in Qatar operates exactly the same way as it does in the rest of the world. So I I think whichever way the national team decides to play, um, I I think they'll they'll be okay with that. And, you know, if they can upset the apple cart and get um, a draw in the opening game, I think they'd take it. Yeah, I, I think the tournament being staged is the finish line. Russia going on the run that they did, um, yeah, run. curious as it was, that was almost an added bonus. Uh, I don't think Qatar is going to get that sort of a bonus. I've, I really wanted to say there's going to be a, a big team that flops in this tournament, and, and I was looking squarely at the Netherlands. But, I mean, their Nations League form, especially beating teams that have sat defensively deep against them, has been pretty good. Bengal has turned that team around. They're, they're a team that does specialise in late goals. I think of the way that they beat Wales by scoring twice in stoppage time, for example. So... I just can't see them slipping up in this group. I think we can pencil in nine points for them already. And in the battle to play for second, I mean, Qatar's not out of it. Qatar is not out of it. And um, I don't think they're going to entertain us. Um, They're not going to come out and have a total character change like Russia somehow did in 2018. Uh, so I mean, we yeah, can slander Russia if we want. They're suspended from FIFA. True, in true. Now, why would he say <laughs> that? Uh, but uh, as Josh has flagged... Just I, some, inject some controversy <laughs> into the discussion. I mean, could this be the, the priceless 9-2-2-2 where Qatar can get through with two draws and the best defensive effort against the Netherlands? I, I don't think you can necessarily rule that out. Well, the, I think the reason we are maybe discussing this as a 9-2-2-2 is because Senegal... We don't know the situation right now. The news broke overnight as we were preparing to record this show. Sadio Mane, L'Equipe, the French publication, reporting that he is out 
of the World Cup. And as Sadio Mane goes, really, I know Senegal have some other talented players, but it's really as Sadio Mane goes, that team goes. And I think that's the best news that Ecuador could possibly have mm. hoped for um, because so much rests upon his shoulders. You know, he's taken on the pressure of an entire nation twice. In an AFCON final, decisive penalty, and in World Cup qualification, decisive Against penalty. Against the same opposition. Yes, Mo Salah on the receiving end. <laughs> Mo Salah in the mud. Both occasions. And I, I do wonder whether, you know, that led to Sadio Mane's eventual departure from Liverpool, whether their relationship ever quite recovered. But that's an aside. Um, Senegal without Sadio Mane is not the same team. And I think Ecuador is in with a real shot of finishing second here. Even with him, having watched both the AFCON final and the two legs of the World Cup qualifiers against Egypt, they were dire struggles. They were dire struggles. Was that so, just because Egypt dragged them down to that it, level? To though? be fair, to be fair, it, it means that Senegal are a team that can be dragged down yeah. to that level. And, so, and they won't have yeah. the uh, the laser pointers this time either. I don't think so. <laughs> Well, will Qatar have laser pointers? <laughs> I, I think those might be connected to sniper rifles, but... Oh. <laughs> I have so, to go to Qatar, guys, please. So, no, but I, I guess my point is, it's not like Senegal are this, you know, daring, carefree, you know, plucky underdog, which is the Africa team at a World Cup stereotype. They're not. They're a team that can defend, but they're a team that is also vulnerable to being defended. Well, Ecuador, looking at this... Ecuador team, they like to counter-attack, particularly down the wings. I mean, that is the way that they go. Ecuador is sort of like one of these South American countries that they don't get the hype and the fanfare of others, but they have been semi-regular attendees of World Cups in the past 20 or so years. What is the best-case scenario for the Ecuadorians? Well, winning the opening group game for starters. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I think that... that Game being the first one for both Ecuador and Qatar is probably the best possible outcome. Like Qatar see that as realistically their best chance is three points. Ecuador will see it as a good stepping stone to potentially springing an upset against a, a Senegal or, or you know less likely a, a Netherlands. I think a lot rests on the performance of like their their star players. You mentioned that sort of transitional threat and. There are sort of they've got strong fullbacks who can provide that sort of thing as well. I mean, Josh, you were looking him up before, and he was one that was uh, right at the um, the front of mind when we were looking at this Ecuadorian squad. And that's that's Purvis Estupinian. He's been very very solid uh, for 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 Brighton as well as his teammate at Brighton and uh, in the Ecuadorian side, which is a uh, Moises Caicedo, the defensive mm. midfielder. I've been really taken by him this season in the Premier League. If those two are putting in good performances. Ecuador have a chance. I still see them missing out. I think Senegal have got enough quality on paper, even without Mane, to, to see them through. But I think three or, three or four points is a, is a realistic, maybe five, a realistic um, haul for them. No, I, I think people are underrating Ecuador because they don't have the NRI in their, in their squad. Sorry, for first-time viewers or listeners of the podcast, NRI, it's one of the many, many TNC-isms we have here. TNC, another one, TNC, acronym for the National Curriculum. NRI, acronym for Name Recognition Index. Sorry, yes, Josh. they don't have the name recognition, but uh, I, don't, let's not forget they qualified ahead of the likes of Chile. So, you know, South American qualifying is the greatest asset test yeah. for, to, to, be fair, to be fair, if you ask Chile about that, they, they, they <laughs> would say that they did it illegally. So, but they have gone through CAS twice, so yeah. it's all good. But I want to ask about the Dutch. The Dutch or what... I mean, with Spain getting finally getting one, are the Dutch the best, the most historically celebrated football nation to have never won a World Cup? 
Yeah. Oh, by, by a long way at this yeah. point because of the finals that they've lost and multi-generations. I still think 1998 where they lost the semi-final might have been their best, as good a chance as any of the finals they lost as well. But And Crow Favvy Twitter as well, as well will yeah, tell I, us about the 70s. But I, I guess the, the thing about the Dutch is they are a far more pragmatic team. Um, the run Under the, Louis van Gaal. The, the run yeah. to the 2010 World Cup final kind of showed that a defence first, uh, less entertaining style of football can finally get success and with the short turnaround times I think squad depth will be valuable for the the Dutch in this particular group but also in the tournament on the whole Uh, those Nations League breaks where you do play three or four games in the space of eight or nine days you know they've shown themselves to be well acquitted for that but I, I mean as far as standout individuals or someone who you know like a Wesley Schneider can just be the player that lifts them all the way to a run to the final I mean do they have that this Dutch team. That, that's what I would wonder it's, about it's them. So, it's sort of Frankie de Jong, isn't it? I think it's Memphis Depay. I, I think he's the guy for, for the Netherlands, whether he's playing as a striker or as a winger, depending on whether they start someone like a, a Wout Veghorst as a battering ram up front. Um, but Depay... He'll, he'll, he'll have a role, especially in the group, I think. Yes, in the group stage games he will. Uh, but in the knockout stages, I believe that Van Gaal will play a 4-3-3. And he will play Depay up front. That's that's his sort of break glass strategy when he really needs to beat somebody good. Now, I'll get your predictions in a sec, but I also wanted to ask about Virgil van Dijk and what we're going to expect to see him. Now, you can mean two minds from this. One is club form with Liverpool has been nowhere near the levels of van Dijk that we've been seeing in recent years. On the other hand, anybody that's watched him could sort of say, well, he's obviously just been putting himself in glass because the World Cup is coming up and he doesn't want to get injured. That is the counter-argument. Is Are we seeing Van Dijk decline and is he going to be a force at this World Cup? Or, or yeah, sorry, are we seeing Van Dijk decline or is he going to be a force? No, I think he'll be a force because international football isn't at the same pace, strategic sort of... Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, detail mm. of club football. He's not going up against Pep Guardiola coach Yeah, teams. It's, not, it's not the Champions League. It is international football. And I do think that for that reason, Van Dijk, he might actually come back to Liverpool rejuvenated after the World Cup, feeling as though I'm back, baby, because he won't be playing against opponents of the level that have been exploiting him in the Premier League and the Champions League so far this season. I actually think his decline has a lot to do with... Liverpool's galaxy brain defensive strategy of just letting teams shoot from mm. distance. He, they have this standoff approach where they play offside trap at all costs and he like just doesn't tackle. Leaning he, forward. Yes, exactly. He doesn't tackle anymore. So I think he's developed some bad habits from that. And I, I actually think he, the fundamentals of defending that used to be the cornerstones of Van Dijk's game have disintegrated. So I, I don't think he's as good as he used to be. And, and they've got, you know, Delict, they've got Arke, they've got, you know, De Vrij. They've got real depth in that position yeah. if Van Dijk doesn't... And especially the if they off. play the back three in the group, which I think is more likely, mm-hmm. he's going to have cover. And normally I'd say they'd also be playing for their coach in Van Gaal because Van Gaal obviously has his cancer diagnosis and all that. Although it's not a very Dutch thing really to, you know, like talk about like winning one for the Gipper and all that is. No, it? it's, so it's very Australian of us to assume, yeah, assume they're going that, to use that. Thinking about the Dutch, yeah, I actually, you know, thinking about the Dutch, maybe they probably don't use that because it's uncouth or something. But I'll get your predictions. Who tops this group? Who goes through? Who finishes last? Netherlands, Senegal, um, yeah, I, and I think the other two could go either way. Whoever wins game one finishes Yeah, pretty third. much, yeah. Uh, Netherlands, Ecuador, Senegal miss out, or maybe on a goal difference uh, type scenario, and Qatar, bottom of the group. 
I, I have it pretty clear cut. Netherlands, Ecuador, Qatar, Senegal. And Marty, Mane's absence, I think, will cost Senegal dearly. I am going with Netherlands to top, Ecuador second, Senegal third, and Qatar fourth. But that is Group A. We've got a lot of them to get through. Stay tuned on TNC's ES. Well, I'll say they will cut that bit. So that is Group A. We've got a lot to get through. Stay tuned for more of ESPN X TNC's World Cup special. Before that, though, we're going to have a special chat with PFA co-chief executive Kate Gill, and I do believe Anna Harrington is joining me for that one. So stay tuned. I, I think we should probably edit out my sniper rifle gag. <laughs> well, welcome back to ESPN X TNC's World Cup preview special and we are back with a very special guest myself Joey Lynch and Anna Harrington joined by Professional Footballers Australia co-chief executive Kate Gill. Kate thank you so much for coming down to Ultra Football to join us today and I guess it's been a, a momentous couple of weeks for the Socceroos and the PFA. The Australia's men's national team becoming the first team to have qualified for the World Cup to raise their collective voices surrounding human rights and the situation in Qatar. What's been the immediate reaction of that? Well, firstly, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and to have a conversation with you. Um, The reaction from it, I think we knew it was going to get a strong reaction, but I didn't think we realised just how strong that reaction would be. Um, We shared it, obviously, on our social network and we had the FA as well broadcasted on their platforms you know there was all, almost over a million views of that video itself and then the engagement from not just human rights defenders but the football community as well was was massive in the reception that the players received making such a bold and progressive statement as they did um was really quite special in a way I think because what was what was the process behind that video? Obviously, this has been an ongoing conversation with not just the Socceroos, but also educating the Matildas and around the situation, workers' rights and human rights in Qatar. How did the video come about? Yeah, as you said, it, it was a process, and it started with a process of education, and it was an informed process in the sense that we didn't just listen to one side of the conversation. It was about engaging with all the stakeholders, be that from the Supreme Committee through to FIFA themselves. We spoke and worked quite closely with FIFPRO, who had direct connection with the migrant workers on the ground through the Builders and Woodworkers Institute. Um, so to be able for the players to have that opportunity to engage with everyone and hear from everyone, it really helped inform their position and their understanding of the um, human rights concerns in Qatar and around the World Cup event itself but I think the most powerful part was hearing directly from the workers themselves and it kind of started with the initial conversations they were quite hopeful it was never a conversation about boycotting there was an ask for them to provide visibility and understanding of their situation and and give them a voice and give them some agency in that conversation so the players went from from hearing that that almost hopefulness in their voice that they were going to have this this tournament that would shine a light on their circumstance and then towards the end and the back end of the conversations when the obviously the tournament was getting much closer you could just hear the desperation in their voices that they knew that they were running out of time to be able to to advocate for what changes needed to occur for their circumstances so the players kind of hearing that and being on the journey and understanding that was probably the strongest pulling point for them to actually you know come together and say we need we need to make a statement on on what this means to us and the engagement process that we've been on and the understanding that we have of the situation 
been a few days now, or more than a week, I think, since he actually made the statement. How have the players reflected on it since? Are they, you know, collectively like, we're so glad we made this statement, or was there any regret? Like, what's been the feedback you've got from the players since? Because it, it really did take off worldwide. Yeah, I think they were quite stunned with, with how much recognition it would get and just how powerful the messaging would be itself and, and how much coverage it would have. And they knew that going forward, it, it then gave them a platform to say is that if they get a microphone shoved in their face at the tournament, which I'm sure they will, obviously. They don't make the decision for the tournament to be where it is, but they become the face of the tournament um, through being there as the players. So there is a responsibility to say something. You know, saying nothing is, is as much as saying something. So for them, it was about setting up their positioning and saying, well, we have set our piece. We've, we've set it quite visibly and vocally through a, through a video. So now we understand the situation. This is what we think of the situation. So now we can, um, you know... We we can come to play football because that's what we're there to do but we also understand that we don't want to be causing harm or further harm to the people that have been helped to make this tournament possible. And do you anticipate it's going to cause any problems or troubles to the players when they get to Qatar in terms of repercussions or anything like that? I don't think so because they weren't saying anything novel or new. This has been going yeah. on for a very long time and there's a broad understanding of just how how concerning the human rights considerations are over in Qatar um, and the Supreme Committee the the Supreme Committee themselves came out off the back of that video to say, you know, we're not perfect. There has been reform and they did acknowledge that in the video as well, you know, but that hasn't been instituted in the way that it should be. So there's still a lot more progress that needs to be made. We saw recently the uh, collective statement from UEFA federations that had qualified for the World Cup, echoing the Socceroos' calls for a migrant resource centre and uh, restitution for migrant workers. Do you think that statement happens without the Socceroos or do you think they've really sort of set the tone for others to now come out and say these things by being the first and just breaking that taboo in a way? Yeah, I think that was an important part of the message. What are the actions, the clear actions that the players are asking for here? And as you correctly identified, one was about remedy to make sure that, that those are harmed, that there is reciprocity for that. And it was around the establishment of a migrant workers' centre to give those on the ground the... Um, the voice that they need and the institute and vehicle that they can go to to air their grievances and, and have that authenticity. And then it was around, you know, the um, decriminalisation of LGBTI plus rights, which is um, a huge issue over in Qatar and also women's rights as well. So there were some strong asks and some strong actions that, that came from the statement and it's great to see that other sporting organisations and football institutions are, are you know, moving that forward as well and continuing that messaging and those asks. Because that call for the decriminalisation of LGBTQI relationships in Qatar, that was absent from UEFA's statement, but that was something that the Socceroos came out and called for, um, a men's football team calling that, and what has traditionally been a space that hasn't talked about those issues a lot. Why was that important to the Socceroos? It's part of human rights, you know. It's part, I don't think that's political in any way. It's, um, it needs to be said. It's reform that needs to take place. And, I mean, Qatar themselves are a member of the UN and they should be upholding those rights. And it's also about women's rights as well. I think both of those kind of sit hand in glove and it needed to be called out and extremely proud of them for doing that. We're seeing more and more athletes sort of take stands, what they believe in. Obviously, the soccer is here. We saw with the Diamonds netballers. Uh, I think we saw with had the Pride round launch the other week as well with Melbourne Victory. Um, do you feel like 
these athletes, uh, well, Socceroos footballers, are going to be more and more vocal in terms of supporting issues. As you know, for example, people might say Australia, or well, Australia has its own human rights concerns. Like, can we expect, say, the Socceroos, the Matildas, Australia's footballers, to become more and more vocal about things they believe in? I think definitely they have a platform and they are strong advocates for what they believe in socially. I know we had the Matildas come out and hold the Indigenous flag during the Tokyo Olympics, which is fantastic to see. You know, being really supportive, as you said, of the LGBTI plus community as well and it, um, it's a continuing movement and I think the players are, are finding their voice and they're taking the time to get educated which is really important so they're, they're coming from an informed position and they feel comfortable to be able to to speak about how we, we protect and we respect these rights. I think we're very good at, at promoting and not really doing the work that we need to be able to sure to understand and make sure the decisions that we're making, even the PFA as an organisation, isn't causing harm to people. You touched there briefly about how players become the faces of these events and looking at the Men's World Cup, we're about to go to Qatar. Four years ago we were in Russia, a Russia who is currently suspended from FIFA and UEFA for the invasion of Ukraine. Moving forward, what steps need to be taken to ensure that we're not talking about human rights and these sort of things heading into these tournaments. I mean, I think one of the things um, FIFA has talked about is giving the players a voice in where these events are held. What sort of conversations need to take place surrounding the staging of these major tournaments? Well, that's in itself. I mean, if FIFA would uphold the statutory obligations around their commitments to human rights, that would that would be a good start, and that's something that, that needs to happen. And this happens with the mega sporting events. We need to look at how we've done the due diligence to understand the impact that we're having on people when we roll these tournaments in and then roll them away. It's like the circus packs up and goes away and we continue to cause further harm to those people on the ground. And that just has to become a part of the process. We need to build in the human rights frameworks and strategies to be able to to go through the processes to understand the situation and, and to make sure that we're not leaving it worse off than when we've come in. Do you think sport's prepared to undergo those difficult conversations, that intersection of the global appeal of major sporting events, but then there's sports washing, the commercial implications of where you hold events, who can afford to take these sort of... It's a very complicated conversation. Do you think sport's ready for that? I think it needs to be ready for that. I think society needs to be ready for that. You know, as Anna alluded to, we're not perfect in any way, shape or form and, and we need to do much more around Indigenous rights, around the way we treat refugees and asylum seekers and that's the work that our society needs to go on. And as I said, I, I think it becomes part of being able to host an event. You need to make sure that you're looking towards progressing and reforming, but you have to understand where you're at. And I think, you know, Qatar has done that. They have gone on a journey. You, the kafala system no longer exists on um, on paper, maybe in practice. It needs to be better than what they do on the ground. And there has been a change within that region, and you're hoping that that moves through to the other Gulf countries as well. But there still needs to be much more done. I also did want to ask you, Kate, as a member of a players' union, heading into this World Cup, a new staging for this World Cup in November, December. Can't be direct. Players are dropping like flies in the lead into this tournament. I mean, we're speaking overnight. Uh, L'Equipe reported that Sadi Amane was going to be missing uh, from the tournament. Players keep getting injured. We're coming out of two COVID-effective years. Massive loads on these players. Talking about workers' rights and the way that they do things, it doesn't seem sustainable or healthy for these players. No, well, it hasn't put people at the centre of the decision, you know. It's just, it's just, there's other competing priorities that have already taken precedent over why we're staging a tournament 
in the, towards the back end of the the year where competitions are still fully flying and players are getting little lead up and preparation to move into these tournaments and as you said that that does great concern around injury and having the the best players that will feature at the tournaments themselves so I think there's a lot of questions that need to be asked I hope this is a good learning opportunity to actually reassess as to, to why the decision was made and how we got there in the first place. Anything more from you, I don't Eric? think so. I think we're good. Excellent. Well, Kate Gill, Co-Chief Executive of Professional Footballers Australia, Australia's Union for Professional Footballers, thank you ever so much for joining us on this ESPN X TNC World Cup special. No, thank you, Joey and Anna. Pleasure, as always. And now we move on to my favourite group of the tournament, Group B, England, Iran, the USA and Wales. It's the geopolitical derby group of this World Cup. And joining me to cover it all is Anna Harrington, Josh Parrish and Lockie Flanagan, Scotland fan, Lockie Flanagan, so no doubt looking very much forward to previewing the team that is going to win the entire tournament, England. But there are other teams in the group as well, Iran, USA and Wales, and I guess I'll throw this open to everybody. Does any, anybody top this group other than England? It shouldn't. No one else should top it, right? Like, I think the main thing people are saying is England should top the group and then it gets tricky when it actually really counts, right? My question is, how are England going to break down teams that are going to sit in a bunker and mm. absorb pressure? Because I actually think having a, a, weak, hill. a weaker group might actually work against England in some ways because the teams they play are going to be more negative. So is this a weaker group, do you think? I think there's no obvious second seed. That's why I think it's a weaker group. I think it's wide open for second place, but um, all of these teams are pretty defensively disciplined. You know, Carlos Kerosh, I mean, he is the coach uh, who pioneered, you know, Manchester United's winning strategy in Europe, which is let's stop being so gung-ho. And we saw that in the World Cup in 2018 uh, during his previous stint in charge of Iran. He's since left and come back, uh, but he knows how to get results against big opposition. So I would tip Iran... Not necessarily to go through, but to ruin somebody else's World Cup. That's the thing, right, isn't it? You just sit really defensively against England if you catch them on the counter, if you jag a goal. Fantastic, massive bonus. Otherwise, it's like damage limitation, right, and then cause as much chaos as you can in your other games. It feels very typical of the the, the lone Scottish Australian on this podcast to be potentially <laughs> advocating against England topping this group. But I feel like I've got to provide some arguments to the contrary. And yes, they should and probably will top this group. But I think the start is really crucial because England have are coming into this tournament with pretty poor international form. I mean, it's been six games since they actually got a win. They were relegated uh, in the in the Nations League down to the, the second division with uh, Scotland going into the top group uh, <laughs> as a result of that. But um, they've like had... With World Cup qualification? No, but... Whatever. I, I, I have no response. I have no response Little to that victories, one. you've got to take them. Exactly, exactly. I am envious. Because this would have been the group that we were in. Wales are there instead, and all power to them when they play against England. But, as I was saying... They have struggled for results. They've struggled with uh, a few defensive issues. I mean, there are incredible attackers in this England squad, and yet Gareth Southgate can't seem to work out a way to get them scoring goals consistently. They're pretty reliant on goals from set pieces. And as Josh rightly pointed out, they struggle sometimes to break down teams that do sit off them. We saw examples of that in the Nations League. And the fact that Iran is the first game for me, I think is is a concern. If they get through that game, you know, they get a couple of goals in, their frontline players you know, perform well, Harry Kane sticks a few in the back of the net, that'll settle the nerves. But 
uh, a risky result against Iran, I think, might ruffle a few feathers. And they will be a really hard team uh, for England to get a result against. If if Iran upset them, that, that could make it quite awkward. But even then, I still think they'd sneak through into second. Well, looking at England, there's been... It's, well, like pretty much every nation heading into this World Cup, there are injury concerns. We know Ben Chilwell will miss. Reports coming out of England about various players that might be replacing him. Reports coming out of England that Marcus Rashford might be replacing him in the squad as well, ending his uh, time in the wilderness since he missed a penalty against Italy in the European Championship final. But... Is England's problem, I guess, not so much the players they have, but the approach that Gareth Southgate takes, this overly pragmatic approach where, and perhaps even loyalty to certain Mm -hmm. players for their performances in an England shirt versus what they've been demonstrating at club level. I can think of one example, Harry. It's Harry Maguire, right? (laughs) And it it just feels like they're not settled. There's constant conflict over who should be in that defence. You look at... I think it's been ongoing in terms of Trent Alexander-Arnold, who I know hasn't necessarily hit his great heights this year, but he's a classic example of someone who's maybe found form in the past, hasn't been rewarded. Your centre-back is always the question. Harry Maguire finds no form whatsoever and then comes in and plays for England and doesn't shine, right? Like, it's, yeah, it, it feels like it's difficult there. And I think the other side of it, you look at, they haven't obviously named their squad yet, it's such a defensive-minded squad, packed with defenders every time, yet there's not... Packed with wing-backs. But not, it's not a settled yeah. one, right? Like, it's not, you can't see the clear, these mm. guys are going to start, this is who should be starting, this is how they should be lining up. And Gareth Southgate's had a long time with this squad to work out you know, what their best formula is. Reese James being injured doesn't help either. Mm. Yeah, it's it's just hard to feel like it's all going to click. I mean, on the flip side, of course, they are on a positive trajectory, defeated in the semi-finals of the last World Cup and then European finalists um, a couple of years ago. So if we are working off linear trajectories here, (laughs) that does bode well. And this is a tournament whereas, yes, Brazil and Argentina probably look to be the favourites, but there aren't... There's no outstanding, oh, this team is absolutely going to win the World Cup sort of vibe. Well, definitely not England, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and as has been pointed out, you generally do win World Cups playing more defensively-minded football. The nature of the World Cup doesn't tend to lend itself to, with some notable ex- exceptions, doesn't tend to lend itself to free-flowing, attack-at-all-costs mentalities. But there are other teams in the group. and no. we'll, Yes, there are. <laughs> well, this is an ESPN podcast and uh, live video special. Well, not live, whatever. The USA, uh, I believe that uh, we will win. Uh, they're going. Chris, can Christian pull a sick... Lead the US to glory. Pulisic. Pulisic. The boy from Hershey, Pennsylvania. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, I I think the US are in pretty good shape. I'm slightly surprised that they haven't brought Zach Steffen uh, as a goalkeeping option. That seems like a notable snub. Maybe he's uh, the USA's Mitch Langerak in this situation. But... um, I'm also surprised that Ricardo Pepe hasn't made it. I don't know if there's an injury concern in the in the background there. See quite a few where is Pepe sort of comments. Yeah, because he's a bit of an X factor. He's an awkward physical matchup, and he provided some pretty important sparks late in their Concacaf qualifying campaign, where the pressure was really on Greg Berhalter. So uh, apart from that, I'm pretty happy with this USA squad, and I I think they've got a more well-rounded group. Um, than in previous editions where it's all resting on one player. Obviously, 
Pulisic is the uh, the main attraction, but there's a little bit more of a, a supporting cast this time around. Yeah, I think as jo- as Josh said before, the the sort of second slot in this group is is pretty up for grabs. My my thing with the US is, you know, it's there are young, exciting young players. Yeah, Pulisic sort of the headline is not sort of the older head, I guess, in this squad. But there are a lot of exciting young talents, the likes of Gia Reyna, Yunus uh, Musa for Valencia, one that I've been really impressed with, one that I'll be keeping an eye out for. But I just wonder, you know, they do have a World Cup to host on the horizon. And I think, obviously, they'd love to make it into the knockouts, get that experience in before 2026. But I just wonder if this isn't quite their tournament necessarily it's sort of one cycle too young which i think is the is the case for a few teams but for a team who will be hosting in four years time i think it's especially true of them uh obviously the official squad dropped moments before we uh started this recording and i just want to express as i did when it initially dropped my disappointment no russell westbrook (laughs) it's a real shame it's a real shame but uh yeah christian pulisic the lebron james of this u.s team excited to see what he can do well it's sort of interesting that in a group with England's, one would ostensibly think that England's get every team's best shot, but the USA-Iran game... Spicy. Yeah, mm. very spicy. I mean, we Bit had the meeting in counter-attacking football in that one. Yeah. <laughs> no, Josh. No, Josh. <laughs> Too early for this. It, it, that, really not I to mean, speak. <laughs> and that game could also potentially, you know, define these two sides' progression through the group stages. One of them gets... Whoever takes the win in that game could very well be in the box seat for at least second position in that group, depending upon what England does. And I guess Team Melly, uh, one of the teams that have qualified through Asia, did it relatively comfortable in their AFC qualification uh, group opposite Australia. And Josh, what did you make of what? What are you making of this team heading into the tournament? I think there's a greater. Uh, issues surrounding this team as opposed to the form and fitness of their players. I think the the noise around the situation in Iran is going to affect them and that's going to be a media focus going into every game and whether they continue some of the protests. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was an incident where they uh, the players protested by wearing plain uh, jackets in the yeah, and covering, covering their, up the national team, the national team's logo uh, while the anthem was being played. Whether that continues, I think there's going to be a, a lot of noise around that, and I think it's going to be very difficult for the team to focus. But uh, having said that, I do really applaud them for for taking a stand in this situation where it would be very easy to say nothing and just be footballers. Yeah, shut up and dribble, right? Like, yeah. well, you wonder as well. Could it go the other way that they've already started protesting? They've taken a stand in these games. Do you? Just say, we're going to keep doing what we've been doing. We're going to keep taking a stand, making our point known. It's the world stage. This is the most... Well, this is the most attention they'll ever be able to draw to it. Because football heads like us see the protests. If you're maybe tuning into the BBC or CNN, you're seeing these protests. But a lot of people would not have seen them. So, yeah, there is going to be an element of noise. Of course, they're going to be asked about it. But maybe that's that's the way they have to take it. It's just, we'll stick to it. We won't let the fact that it's a World Cup and that we're going to be questioned and all these things are going to come up stand in the way. We'll keep taking a stand. I mean, it'd be the right thing to do, and so far they seem inclined to be wanting to do that, right? It it really is an impossible situation Mm. for them. It speaks to the impossible situation, I think, as Kate Gill spoke to earlier when we discussed it with her, just footballers and athletes tend to become the faces of issues that they never signed up for, purely Mm. because of their standing in 
the global consciousness and it really is going to be a difficult situation for them. We've seen former legends as well of the Iranian national team speak out and come under heat from the Iranian government as a result of that. So it really is an impossible situation that they've been put in and not, it sounds churlish, but from a performance aspect, it can't be helping them heading into this mm. tournament like something like this, even though you do have to applaud them for their stances at Amino as well. Iranian-born Australian representative Daniel Arzani, he came out recently in an A-League men game and took a stand with the protesters as well. So it's an interesting situation. But on the football side of things, I think, as we've discussed, they're going to be defensively resolute, aren't mm. they, Josh? Yes. They're so well drilled by Carlos Kerosh. They usually play back five and they'll take what they can get in terms of attacking opportunities. They have a few prodigious attacking talents. They'll be sweating on the fitness of Sada Azmoun, who I know has had an injury cloud, but I believe he's still been named in the squad. Mehdi Taremi is the player who is on the redemption arc after he missed that chance late in the game against Portugal, I think it was, mm. in 2018, that would have sent them through. And they took them right to the wire. There was all the VAR drama in that game. Everyone remembers, you know, Ronaldo having, spinning the dummy in spectacular <laughs> fashion. But Mehdi Taremi has been uh, dreaming about that miss, uh, having nightmares every night for the last four years, I bet. And the chance for redemption for him uh, is significant. And he's one of their most talented attacking players uh, now playing at a very good level with Porto. So, yeah, his performance and his whether he takes those chances that do fall to him is going to be crucial for them if they're going to progress. And I guess the other concern for Iran is that when they do concede, like when the dam bursts, it bursts proper mm. and they do get scored on in bunches. So it will be interesting to watch that. But the final team in this group, Wales, back on football's grandest stage, really... Well, if it had been anybody other than Ukraine, they were playing in the European qualifying playoff. Yeah. <laughs> the world would have been behind Wales. Rather, but then again, it was Ukraine. So they took on, as they acknowledged themselves, they were the villain of that piece. But they're through. Gareth Bale is finally on football's grandest stage. Wales, Lockie, another host home country. I mean, that you'll be backing in lieu of Scotland. How do you think they're going to go? Well, I would refute your point earlier that everyone would have been behind Wales if it were not for Ukraine. I think a lot of people would have been uh, stressing over, oh, do I pick Scotland or Wales? Both very worthy options to support in a playoff. But anyway, it was Wales that made it through and off the back of some pretty incredible performances uh, from, from Gareth Bale in particular. He's obviously the, the key. This is probably going to be his last stand at a World Cup. Um, and I would say that, you know a lot of what they are going to be able to achieve or lack thereof in this tournament hinges on the performance of of Bale. The good thing is, because Josh was talking about focus, potentially other teams being dragged away by off-field issues, that sort of thing, not going to be a problem for Gareth Bale because uh, head coach Rob Page said there's no golf. No golf. We know that Wales golf Madrid, that was the order, but he was asked, he was asked, (laughs) Rob Page, by Gareth Bale, can I play a bit of golf while we're here? It's like, no Two eyes on the squad, so he won't have anything lingering in the background as he might have done in previous tournaments. He won't be focusing on, you know, oh, this par three. He will be fully focused on the football, and if he and Aaron Ramsey are continuing to contribute to the goals as they've done with the vast majority of what Wales have scored in the lead-up, I think they're a chance of, uh, of qualifying as the second-place team. It's so going to be interesting because I believe one of the Socceroos off-days activities is a golf day. So <laughs> I was going to say, is there no? <laughs> I was going to say, is there no golf in the golf? But no, there's golf. No, no, there is golf in the golf. No oh, there's golf. golf. No golf. There's golf. golf. <laughs> 
No, but Harrow, looking at the strengths of this Wales side, though, and I'll get to you in a second, Josh, as well, but unity has to be a big one. Collective purpose that can only be, I guess, brought when you haven't been on this stage for so long. Yeah, well, you want to go out and mm. give your best account of it. They'll, As we've talked about before, this group is so open, and I think they're in a really good position in the sense that their first two games are right against Iran and the US, and then they get to go all out against England in that last game. You look at those first two games, and they're the ones where you really need to rack up the points because you're playing the other teams that are arguably, unless things fall the way Lockie said, going to be for second place. And then everyone's backing you against England, let's be honest. Like, you just got to go all out, see what you can jag. Can Gareth Bale pull off a moment of magic? I reckon they, they go in with a really good sense of purpose. Like, get what you can, get maximum points out of those first two games, or get what you can, and then free hit. I think you have to look at England as a free hit because there's no pressure on them. All the pressure's on England. Mm. And they'd have loved that. They would love that. Yeah, we've seen what Gareth Bale can do in big games, even off the bench. Exactly. But Josh, how do you expect them to play? I think if they play that Michael Sheen um, pump-up before the game, <laughs> they will knock off England. Give them some sugar, boys. That's my message to Wales before this World Cup. <laughs> so I mean, that was stirring stuff. I was, I, I was a proud Welshman after that 30 minutes spiel, and I, you know, I've never been to Wales in my life. So I mean, that must have made you feel something, Joey. Surely, well, even I, in the, the cold, deep reaches that. of the English heart. <laughs> I, I was watching that and thinking that Ukraine robbed us of... Another one of those David Tennant and Michael Sheen argument clips when Scotland (laughs) played Wales with a place in the World Cup on the line. But I'll get you guys on the record now as we're doing with all these groups. England, Iran, the USA and Wales. Who tops the group? Who goes through in seconds? Don't start with me. Okay, begrudgingly... And I think it'll be tight. I think England will make it. They'll have a tough time potentially facing, depending on who, what things happen in in Group A, they might face a a Netherlands or a a Cameroon, sorry, a Senegal. Uh, Both of those will be tough opponents for them. I think they'll sneak through. And I'm going to back in Wales as the second place team. Uh, Iran in third and USA last. But I think it'll be, you know, there'll be points, like fine margins separating these sides. I'm going to go with England and the USA. I think um, the West wins in this geopolitical battle. Uh, but Famous you know, Eastern country, <laughs> Wales. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, um, they're not a hegemonic you know, yes. global superpower. Um, I, I think it's a close-run thing for second place. But I just think the US, are, they're a team that has gelled together pretty well. Mm. They're on a good trajectory. They've got good young talent. I think this might be a nice precursor of what we're going to see with this, this age group peaking at the next World Cup, which they'll be co-hosting. I, yeah, I'm actually with Josh here. I think it'll be England top. USA will sneak into second. I think it'll be tight. As I said, I think Wales will get that free hit at England and give them a bit of a scare in the last game. But I think the US just have that extra bit more solidity to them than maybe the other two teams that are going for it. They're in a, they're in a good place. I mean, Wales are still starting Kiefer Moore up front. So, you know, it's very much kicking to the big lug. Even if you've got Gareth Bale and the pace of Daniel James on the counter-attack and there's, you know, washed up Aaron Ramsey in midfield... I, I, I think they're a bit limited. Well, I'm also going with England's to top the group, and I'm going to go with England's dashing Wales hopes on the final match day of the round, and Iran 
going through in second. I think Iran uh, get the edge over the USA and Wales go from competing to exit the group stages on the final day to finishing last after losing, probably in heartbreaking fashion to England. But more groups to come. Stay tuned. Welcome back to ESPN X TNC's World Cup preview special. And here we go, the Socceroos, the Boxing Kangaroos, as called by Graham Arnold in his press conference announcing his squad. Well, the squad is in. Andrew Redmayne, Matty Ryan, Danny Vukovic, Nathaniel Atkinson, Joel King, Aziz Baich, Kai Rolls, Milos Degenek, Harry Sutar, Thomas Deng, Bailey Wright, Fran Karicic, Keanu Bacchus, Jackson Irvine, Cammy Devlin, Riley McGree, Aidan Hrustich, Aaron Moy, Martin Boyle, Garen Kual, Matthew Leckie, Mitch Duke, Awama Bill, Craig Goodwin, Jamie McLaren, and the cum dog has been capped, Jason Cummings. Now, Harrow, what was your immediate reaction when you saw that squad? I was just glad that for once we had a national team squad and there was no controversy. No one was selected that shouldn't have been... No one missed out. No complaints. Yes. Just peace and love in tranquility. football. Just yes. And we've had a nice no. calm start to this segment as well with the shipping forecast. So you know, thank thank you for that, Joey. I oh, appreciate it. You're, you're very much welcome, Josh Parrish. Do you have anything constructive to add? Absolutely to this not. <laughs> <laughs> what do you expect? Well, Harrow was of course being facetious. There was controversy even before the Socceroo squad was officially announced. Nobody got uh, any drops. It wasn't sent out under embargo, but the leaks did come in the end. And the big one. Well, it's not often that the backup goalkeeping position is the biggest controversy that comes out of a World Cup squad, but it was this time. Mitch Langerak, after setting clean sheet records, plural, in Japan over the past few seasons with Nagoya Grampus, being brought out of international retirement by Graham Arnold just two weeks ago, by request by Graham Arnold just two months ago, sorry, not in the squad. Harrow... What's your immediate reaction to that? Stunning, wasn't it? I think when you read everyone's previews of this uh, this squad the day before, it's like, and the goalkeepers are a lock. There'll be Matt Ryan and there'll be Mitch Langerak and then Andrew Redrain as the third goalkeeper vibes guy, right? Penalty shootout specialist, which clearly is something the Socceroos will need. Um, but, yeah, I think everyone had Mitch Langerak penciled in, not just as backup goalkeeper, but as an actual contender for number one, mm. given his sensational season and... I mean, sustained brilliance in Japan. Matt Ryan, injury cloud, really struggling for a spot on his team in, in Copenhagen. I mean, he's barely played for he's, years. He's yeah, he's barely he's played. Gone. So it seemed logical, right? And I think most people go with that rule with goalkeepers. When you've got three goalkeepers, your one and two should be really duking it out because you want that competitive balance. You want players to be at their best. And then the third guy is the vibes guy. You, you pick a good playlist. You'd be a good bloke around the locker room. You could be a penalty shootout specialist. Yeah, I think everyone was stunned. I, I don't think I've spoken to anyone who has said, no, this seems like the right decision. Mm. Yeah, well, I think the most telling thing is Robbie Slater, who at times has used his uh, Daily Telegraph column mm. sort of as to give us an insight into Graham Arnold's thinking, said that this was about harmony and it's about creating an environment where there's not a challenge 
to the established starter. And what I found hilarious is the Socceroos have had like a five-minute taste of what every Matilda's squad selection is like and everyone's calling it out. It's fantastic. So more of this, please. If you see something that doesn't add up, speak out. And I think Aussie Scout, we talk about this guy quite a bit, he said today, you know, all three goalkeepers, Redbane, Ryan and Vukovic, are Crawley protégés, John Crawley, the goalkeeping coach, from their time at Westfield Sports High, the Central Coast Mariners and Sydney FC, respectively. So, yes, there's an alignment here. Will that harmony get the best out of Matt Ryan? Maybe it will. As we know, Brad Jones came back for the 2018 World Cup. That was at the expense of Mitch Langerak. And again, I feel as though that was something that um, created a totally different harmony amongst the goalkeepers, but also the squad broadly, because Langerak had been seen as one of those guys that you know a lot of the people in the team respected. Tommy Orr spoke out quite extensively mm-hmm. about it. End of the day, it is our backup goalkeeper, but you just know that we're going to see at least two of these goalkeepers on the field in this World Cup, whether it's by design because we concede a penalty at a time where Graham Arnold feels he can sub Andrew Redmayne on, or because Matt Ryan's injury is not going to hold up. I think one of the biggest reasons we saw the furor surrounding it was just because one of the constant uh, criticisms or accusations, I should say, as a better word, that has followed Graham Arnold around throughout his tenure is his predilection for picking people that he is familiar with. We saw after the last World Cup and into the Asian Cup, Josh Risden uh, moved out of the Socceroos team, Ryan Grant coming in, and there is that perception of playing favourites and the harmony sort of aspect of it, which if you do look at it, from a footballing perspective, Mitch Langerak is absolutely in the three best options available to the Socceroos. So I don't even, I can't think anybody of anybody that would argue that Mitch Langerak isn't one of the best three goalkeepers available to the Socceroos. And it, it's important to note that, you know, nobody can blame Danny Vukovic for this. All he's done, he's picked up the phone call and been told that he's going to a World Cup. He's not going to turn it down based on principle. The heat is on John Crawley and Graham Arnold for making these decisions. As the coaches, as the selectors, they are the ones that should feel the heat from this. But I think... It gets back to that root issue of wherein we are, we are obviously we are being seen to not pick the squad based upon the best available players, and you can do you can sort of see that elsewhere. And that there has been, while there is, it is clear that there has been a general focus, I think, on picking players in form and that are playing regularly with their clubs. You only need to look at the midfield to really see that, outside of Aiden Rustic, who should have been there on one leg. Basically, everybody else is playing and seeing the field for their respective clubs. But then you've also got circumstances like Awam Abil, who's barely seeing the field for Kadith, even though, based on talent, he's clearly there. But then there's also somebody like Joel King, who got the nod at left-back, despite very rarely seeing the field and others such as Jason Davidson moving to Europe and seeing the field a lot and playing centre-back and left-back as well. Callum Elder has been injured but has been doing it week in and week out. So it's just, I guess, a lack of consistency in the messaging and the actual execution in the squad, Josh. I think overall the preference has been towards regular minutes. There are some exceptions, as you pointed Mm. out there. And that's what's jarring. Yeah, but... I do wonder about the whole debate around minutes versus, you know, the quality of the league that you're signed up in and the training sessions that you're in. Because Denny Genre, a great example, playing in Ligue 1, I mean, he's only played 47 minutes or something this campaign. But, uh, you know, a couple of guys playing for pretty low-ranked 
since premiership sides have made the cut. I guess that reflects the shorter turnaround time heading into this World Cup mm-hmm. and potentially not having time for a, a goose hitting style mini pre-season in the lead-up. So players who are rusty will be exposed. Um, but... Yeah, the, the preference has been towards regular minutes, and I can see that with the way that Arnold wants to play, Australia being the, the battling boxing kangaroo underdog. Uh, you know, it's a preference towards that physicality, and uh, I, I understand the approach, even if I disagree with it in some aspects. I mean, it was hinted at by Arnold in his press conference announcing the squad that this has been a team selected to perform to a certain function in Qatar. They're going to fight. Like... It, they're not, and this has been a conversation we've been having surrounding the philo- philosophical direction of the Socceroos throughout the entire qualification process. Do we want to fight and sort of drag team down teams down to our level and beat them with experience, <laughs> or do we want to, like uh, our former colleague now living on an alien spaceship once wrote that there has never been any lack of faith in Australian players' effort. There has always but there's been a lack of faith in their actual footballing ability. But just on that, the way the national teams talk about themselves is really grating. Like the, the part of, I listened to the full press conference, the thing that really annoyed me was when Arnold said, if I put Kai Rolls and Harry Souter in a boxing ring tomorrow, they'd be ready to go. Great. What about a football pitch? Yeah. You know, no one cares if they can box tomorrow. And if that's just an analogy, who's it for? Why does the national team talk about it in that manner? Siege mentality as well. Like, mm. but, but this is yeah. this. The, Danny Vukovic's press conference, and I think Josh you, or Joey, one of you might have listened into that. Joey was on. Joey the was there, right? So, the the whole the world's out to get us thing. I mean. We've gone back to this numerous times. Ever since Sam Kerr said, suck on that one. Bailey Wright said, stick that in your pipe and smoke it. Why is it that our national teams make an enemy and a straw man at that out of the people who care the most about the team, which is the ones who care enough to watch? And thus, we watch, and that is how we make our criticisms. You have the entire AFL and NRL apparatus out there, and yet they need the fans of the team to be their motivation to have a backs to the wall? Are you kidding me? I mean, why wouldn't you say Peter Volandis is out here trying to buy up all of New South Wales? The AFL is trying to get AFLW to undercut every junior sport in the country, and football's one of them. They're the enemy. Why doesn't that motivate you as opposed to they said uh, Langerak should be in the squad over me? And I think if you actually looked at most people's headlines or um, lead pars about these squads, it wasn't just Mitch Langerak wasn't there. It was... You know, Wunderkind Garang Kuol has been selected with teammate Jason Cummings. Condell. But Mitch Langerak has been left out. I think most people are looking... The first headline a lot of people have actually gone to... I mean, Mitch Langerak was the breaking news but by Vince, right? So that's where a lot of people are... Why a lot of people are talking about it. But when you actually looked at the squad as a whole, people were generally positive. Like, people, I think, said, you know, Arnold made the tough call with leaving out his literal son-in-law in Trent Sainsbury... Um, made the call on Tom Rogic. He didn't, you know, let past um, performances versus, you know, not going to those other qualifiers play a, play a role. He, he left him out. But I thought generally most lead pass from the media were how good is this Garan Kowal is going to be going to the World Cup and Jason Cummings is going to be this sensational story of a career turnaround after being on the scrap heap in Scotland less than a mm. year ago. So, it's yeah, the, the siege mentality... And for me, sometimes when you do get that sort of um, response from a player or a coach, there is a... 
it's, got to be a level of insecurity it's, it's there, just, right? It's You've very got to wearing. know at some point that there people actually have a point to what they're saying. It's just very wearing to think that this is what our national teams are going to be in perpetuity. It's, you know, they're out to get us. No one believes in us, as uh, TNC talked about in its mm. most recent episode. We now need to prove them wrong. But who you're proving wrong are the people who care about the team the most because mm. they're the ones who care to watch. Lucky you had and, and that's the thing, Jay. It's like that... It's not like the questions that are being asked as a result of this squad, of which there are, as you point out, Anna, many positives that we'll get to talk about. But it's not like there's a fair and uh, unfair or unreasonable questions that are being put mm. to the national teams where it relates to selection. Like, the criteria was set by the manager himself that minutes matter, performances matter, these are the most important things. And as Joey said, that's for the most part been observed but there are these just glaringly obvious exceptions to the rule and for some reason in the case of case of Mitch Langrak when he's asked about that sort of thing it's somehow not Graham Arnold's decision it's the decision of the the goalkeeper coach now I found that a bit sort of ah but see that's the five minute taste of what the Matildas have because we have delegator in chief you know abdicating his responsibility for who picks the team and and X Y but, but it's not a choice so, it's, but, so it's if we're having equality why wouldn't the Socceroos do exactly the same yeah, thing I but it's it's a recommendation it's not a choice yeah. like and Lucky is right at the end of the day Graham Arnold is the national team coach and it is his class I don't think like talking about the negative media I don't think. It was unfair, the questions that were being asked either. I mean, look at Gareth Southgate is going to be absolutely hammered no matter what he does yeah. when he announces the England team. Go to South America. Like, that is going to be poured over for hundreds of hours by hundreds of different media So outlets. many pages like, yeah, in the paper. There'll be completely <laughs> analysis. I mean... It was remarkable that, uh, you know, yesterday Jason Cummings in his press conference was talking about how nice the Australian football media is, a bloke that has experienced the British footballing press and how Mm. awful they can be. So I don't think it was completely unfair. It also, I think, maybe came down to the way that the way the squad was announced. There was no embargoed release to media. There was no briefing before the official announcement. There was just complete radio silence. The news gets broken. Like, that is just how the media works. Yeah, that that was probably the result of all those last-minute phone calls to Christian Volpato. I mean, no, I'm being dead serious. Like, you know, if he's called him three times in the last 12 hours before the squad gets named, it's because they didn't have something to leak at that point, really. Mm. Well, some... uh, But some things did leak. The Langerate news obviously leaks, and in a vacuum with nothing else to fill it. People react to. Yeah, people react to, and that's what journalists report because they're not under an embargo or anything like that. Not to get too full sounding board on this discussion and discuss it's the strategies. Save it for the, the, the main yeah, body, It's not about, about the media. Yeah, it's, it's not about, about but the squad. I'm just trying to, yeah, <laughs> trying to explain. But moving on to the squad because... We are not the protagonists. Yeah, we aren't the protagonists. <laughs> and there is good news around this team. I mean, I'm very much a fan of Cameron Devlin yeah. uh, getting a call up. As I said on social media, I'm shattered that Connor Metcalf and Denny Genro didn't. I can understand the reasoning behind why they didn't, even if I think that they could have made an impact and they are in 20, uh, tw- as 26th of the most talented players this country has. But very excited to see Cammy Devlin get his call up. Very excited to see Garang get his call up. Jason Cummings be rewarded. For his good form. Graham Arnold said he would reward minutes in good form. The cum dog has been playing fantastic for, for the Mariners and gets his call up. But, Harrow? I was just going to say, I like the Devlin selection because it mm. feels like one where they sort of have conceded, you know, maybe we got it wrong. We weren't conceded, we weren't calling him up for quite a few windows there. He only very recently actually, you know, mm. got a proper call up and they've gone, actually, yeah, this is the sort of player we're 
we're missing. This is the sort of player who's really having an impact. So I, I did like that. I felt like it was actually justified reward, and I think he's the sort of player we actually do miss. How many minutes he'll actually get, yet to be seen, but, yeah, good player to have in, in, the, in that squad at least. But, yeah, I think the positive story has to be Kowal and Cummings, and doesn't it? Like, bolts from the blue, really, in terms of that past year. Mm. They're exciting. They're players that I think if you're a non-football fan, you can get behind. Like, good stories, good players. They're exciting. They combine well. They can both offer impacts. I mean, Kowal's going to be a, a super sub. We, I think we all know that. And it's interesting, so much talk about he's going to go to a World Cup without even starting an A-League men game. But for me, that doesn't matter because he's not going to the World Cup <laughs> to start. So he, he's shown he can do that role so well in his senior football and that's the role that he's going to have at this, you know, tender age of his career. Mm. I, think, I just think it's fantastic. I mean, not only is he not going to start, but I feel like there have been many times already in this this short but eventful journey of Garan Quoll where people have raised the question, is he up to the level of doing X? Mm. And when he made the, the, the journey up to the national team for the first time, people were asking, will he be capable? When he mm. was selected as, I think, a commissioner's pick in the A-League All-Stars, people were thinking, has he shown enough? But really, every challenge that has been thrown up to this guy so far, he's taken with both hands. So I actually think he's worked out enough credit in the bank at this point where we have to stop asking the question of, is he capable? Admittedly, he won't be running at Storm Roo in, at the World Cup like he was in his Socceroos' debut, but it, it is going to be interesting to watch. I'm aware. No, but then he, he, yeah. he had a pretty impressive performance against Barcelona. Yes, was it a makeshift Barcelona in its off-season? Sure, but he has, every time a challenge has been thrown up to him, he has proven himself up to the task. And yeah. look, I, I know intangibles only count for so much in football, but that confidence will count for something if Australia or when Australia need a spark off the bench. Apologies for the drive-through on drive-by on Storm Roo, by the way. I'm just simply <laughs> saying that I think he'd agree with me that he's probably not getting in the French national team anytime soon. But I'm aware of hey, time. Hey, he's got a French surname, so really? you know, he might be eligible. Indeed. What <laughs> I might do is I might go down the line. Give me your starting eleven for the first game against France. Starting with me, okay. Um, Ryan obviously starts. Um, Atkinson right back, Beige left back. The two central defenders. Now, this is a tough one. The heart's bias within me wants to say that Kai Rolls gets a start. He did make Quick his... Quick segment's uh, a good segment, Lockies. He did get his first 90 minutes uh, over overnight against Rangers, so we'll say that. Uh, Suta and Degenek, midfield three. It's my midfield three, not everyone else's. Uh, Devlin, Irvine... And Frustich, and then a front three of Mobil, Boyle, and Jason Cummings. I I think, in terms of prediction rather than a preference, yeah, this is predictions. I I think Moy is a lock to start. I yeah. I also think Mitch Duke might start yeah. against France, which I I think is a terrible idea. I don't think Duke will get touch if he starts against France. He'll barely be involved. Uh, that's obviously an exaggeration, but. When you're playing against a team who's going to completely dominate the ball against you, why would you want a target man who's only effective attacking the box? Potentially against Tunisia, Duke is a great option because Australia will be higher up the pitch. They'll have the ball. They'll have the ball a lot more. Tunisia will sit a lot deeper and Duke can attack crosses. But against a side where you're under the pump and you need someone who can break the line in behind or hold the ball up and wait for the team to advance... And, and lay it off to a midfielder. McLaren and Cummings are both better options. So I think Duke might start, but I think if he does, it's a terrible mistake. Given, given us your team. 
<laughs> well, <laughs> I, am I going to read the whole thing? Am I going to read the whole thing? I think it'll be M- yeah. Mabil Boyle, Duke, uh, Moy Irvine, Hrustich, um, fitness permitting, Sutar again, fitness permitting, uh, with probably with I think Bailey Wright might start because he was in that qualifier. Mm. So he was in the qualifier and he's the only one starting ninety minutes week yeah, in and week out in the lead. I think he might get the nod um, at right back. It'll probably be Atkinson. Mm. Uh, Bayich is basically a lock and then yeah. Ryan between the sticks. I was gonna say pretty similar. I, I wouldn't want to start Mitch Duke either, but I think he will. Um I'm this is not a slander of Mitch Duke in any way. I just think the way that they're oh, gonna play. I was a slander of Mitch Duke. Wow, cop, <laughs> cop that. Um, Hi, yeah, Mitch. I, leave us a like and a retweet. <laughs> he has qualities and he's got limitations. Actually, oh, make it a quote play. tweet when, telling us what you think of Josh Parrish. One thing I do wonder is with my Bill's lack of game time, if Arnie winds back the clock just a little bit and goes for Matt Leckie, who has been in really, really good form yeah. for Melbourne City. Um, I think he's more likely to stick to a bit of tried and true that front that front three Duke mm. Boyle again these fitness queries like add add a bit to me but um, yeah I wouldn't be surprised if it's either Dignac or Wright with Suta I think Arnie will want Suta in there straight away if he's fit mm. it sounds like he did well in his first sort of first team match um, for Stoke when he came back Matt Ryan obviously in goal I think Bayich is a lock at left back he'll probably go for Atkinson at right back. The centre-backs, I'd love to see Tommy Dang. Hopefully he gets a bit of game time in the group matches, but I don't think it'll be against France, unfortunately, because I think he's great. Um, yeah, I think it'll probably be either Wright or Dejanek with um, with Suta. And then I think the I think the midfield three is a lock, pending fitness, with Moy, Irvine and Rustic. On three, probably, yeah, Duke, Boyle and one of Mabella or Lecky, maybe. Mm, well... Midfield three, I think, is a, a lock. I'd agree with you. Moy, Irvine and Hrustich, pending fitness. I think you're on the right track with the Leckie stuff. Uh, I've been, been thinking awesome, about... Hasn't he? Well, and, and especially thinking about it over the past 24 hours, I think Leckie does start against France because he'll also... He'll, he's playing for Melbourne City, so he'll press and he'll do the defensive work as well. And, it, and in fact, I actually think we might see Melbourne City-inspired front three. I think mm. Leckie, I McLaren, Leckie, McLaren, Leckie, McLaren and, Boyle. and Boyle up front because those three will run and they will press. And, and they'll finish. They're finishers as well. That's the thing. Mitch Duke yeah. isn't as much of a finisher, I think. It's obviously, I think Jamie McLaren is the most natural finisher and if, the team. if if you're running out of front... I mean, it's a bit optimistic. I mean, what's our XG really going to be in this game? Well, we're just... Tayo, let Tayo, us have Tayo, fun. Tayo, Tayo. Let us fantasy book, but and it's also this is the negative media we're yeah. talking about. If you're, <laughs> if, you're um, if you're running out of front three Holding of Mabil, McLaren, or Duke and Boyle, no World Cup experience there. There's nobody that's. I'm, I'm actually all in now on our yeah, lucky McLaren yeah. and Boyle front three, like, Joey. Yeah, the like Melbourne Mafia yeah. is coming <laughs> in. I don't mind the idea of my defence yet. More Victorian. Hang on. No, More Victorians. Your point about Deng. Does anyone actually think that's realistic if Atkinson isn't the starting As right back? He can play there. We've I seen think, it. I think Karacic, I think Karacic, would. Karacic has the inside running. But yeah, I think. I think the front three will be Leckie, McLaren and Boyle. Uh, the back four, so I, mean, I think Bayich and Atkinson start. I think they're locked in alongside Ryan behind them. I think Sutar starts. I think Kyrol starts. I think Graham Arnold... Boxing absol- kangaroos. Ab- absolutely loves 
Kyrales. I mean, Kyrales started in the playoffs against, and he's played more first team senior football than Suter in the build up to the World Cup. So I absolutely think that Graham Arnold not only sees Suter and Rales as the centre back pairing for the next decade, I think he sees them as his centre back pairing for this World Cup. I, I will just throw in again that he did play 90 against Rangers and, albeit in a loss, played quite well this morning. So I, I wouldn't be surprised to see that happen either. And Teo, give us your starting line. No, no, same as Josh. Same as Josh? Okay. Uh, I just want to know which French player Matt Leckie's going to square up to if if he starts. See, Who's going to be... This is why Adam Peacock is actually the biggest villain in Australian football because he had Matthew Leckie on his podcast <laughs> and he debunked the fight me C-U-N something gif of him against the Netherlands. And I've never... It was like worse than finding out the hey, Santa Claus. Hey, who knows if Leckie was telling the truth? Mm. He's a family man. Yeah. He's a family man. He does, maybe he doesn't want his kids to know that they drop C-bombs. <laughs> I want to know which, which French player, because it was uh, Lucas Hernandez, last World Cup, who became the villain, mm. the, the pantomime villain for, for Australia. So I want to know which French player we're all going to have their face on a dartboard. Ben, after this Benzema. Argument. Like mental disintegration surrounding his court case. No, I, I, I think it has to be uh, due to perceived cheating, not just... Mm. Yeah, we like to be slighted. We mm. need a villain. We need Mbappe. a crosser. Yeah, just call I, I'm seconding Mbappe. Also, yeah, knowing Australia's predilection for a bit of tall poppy syndrome, Mbappe being the tallest of the poppies, I think he'll be uh, the one that they'll upset Mbappe so much that he'll take his week's earnings and buy the entire A-League men. Are we certain that France are going to play their strongest eleven? in this opening game, given the short turnaround times, given they will have a seven-game strategy to win the tournament. Okay, yeah, not to be a downer, but do they need to? No, no, but that's my question. Is in, in terms of who we pick to prepare, do we put any consideration at all into who France might actually pick in this game? I think Didier Deschamps plays the same system, even if he doesn't play the same personnel. I mean, they, they certainly could, but I wonder, we'll get to talk about them later, but given the very rough lead-in they've had to this tournament, the absentees, the, the form, the off-field stuff... I think they might be doing so at their peril. Maybe. Mm. Maybe. Welcome back to the ESPN XTNC World Cup special. Unfortunately, we have had to say goodbye to Anna Harrington as we move into our broader look at Group D, the group that Australia, the Socceroos, will be playing in. They are joined, of course, by Le Bleu, the reigning defending world champion France, Denmark, another rematch from the 2018 iteration of the tournament, but Tunisia as well, the Carthage Lions joining the fun in Group D. Now, we talked a bit in the preceding segment about who we expect to see Australia line up in this game, but Le Bleu, they've almost had a worse build-up to this with injuries and the like than Australia, haven't they? Everybody's dropping like flies. There's going to be no N'Golo Kante, no Paul Pogba, can they go? Can they avoid just francing it up, collapsing? Is another question. But can they go back to back? I would argue that Paul Pogba, at this point in his career, might be addition by subtraction. Uh, given that oh, they, Ewing theory, we got a yes, Ewing theory. Yes, indeed, because France were built in a way to cater for Paul Pogba's uh, weak points in his game, and N'Golo Kante 
and Blaise Matuidi even coming inside from the left and being an extra midfielder in the last World Cup were due to covering for Paul Pogba's defensive shortcomings. He's and laconic. He's a luxury In, in his absence, also in Kante's absence, uh, they've got a younger midfield duo in there in Chouameni and Kamavinga who are going to provide plenty of energy and cover plenty of ground. So they're not going to have such issues and it may give a little bit more freedom to the forward players. Does that... What does that do to somebody like maybe an Aaron Moy starting in the Australian midfield? I mean, he's a lot of things, but at this point, certainly at this point in his career, athletically gifted isn't one of them. No, and I think Moy will be backing off and trying to keep everybody in front of him. And that's going to be a real challenge because uh, Moy, uh, as comfortable as he is, you know, moving the ball from side to side and switching the play, uh, defensively, He's going to be caught in his heels a little bit in this one. And I, I think Australia are going to struggle to, to keep up with the, the speed and athleticism of France. Of course, when you talk about France, you can't really not talk about the attacking talent that they have at their disposal. I mean, highlighted by Gillian Mbappe, at this point maybe the biggest footballer on the planet. Um, I think he owns PSG now, or at least something like that, in order to keep him around in Paris. And, of course, the newly crowned Ballon d'Or winner, Karim Benzema, Ah, uh, how does Australia keep that out, Lockie Flanagan? Can you keep that out? And all the other talent they have that I didn't mention. I mean, I, I yeah, the, the release the Giroud answer, as well. The, well, Giroud. The, I'm actually amazed you didn't say him at first yeah. to begin with. Um, I, I think the realistic answer is you don't. And it's it's really really tough. Uh, I don't necessarily want to go back to the well and and sort of you know rehash old ideas, but I do think perhaps the hard-working, industrious approach that we saw last time these two sides met against uh, at, well, at the World Cup in 2018. Um, it worked for quite some time against, against, uh, against France. You know, they did eventually go on to win, but we were able to limit them to opportunities by being that sort of workhorse style of team, defending pretty deep. Obviously, we didn't score from open play, but we got a penalty fortuitous though it was. Like I said, I don't feel good about saying it. It's not the way that I want our national team to play necessarily, but I do think just in the sheer uh, weight of quality against us, it's probably going to be the best or the only way to um, to get them. I will say the other thing riding in our favour is the fact we're playing them first because that's... You think that rides in our favour? Yeah. Because I would well, prefer may, may, to play them last when they've already got six points. First or last, but first is also That's assuming they have six points after playing the Danes. Sure. Well, this is this is the thing: is that I, I'm not even 100 percent convinced that France top this group. Denmark this is, as well. Yeah. I, that's because I, I read a lot into the, the off-field stuff that's happening. It's not the first time France have had a shaky lead-in and subsequently a spectacular, you know, two thousand and two. The stuff dreams are made. A spectacular <laughs> failure of the tournament. They do struggle playing that opening game. Twenty ten, we saw them lose to South Africa. Obviously, you've just invoked the spirit of two thousand two there, Joey. Perhaps with all the off-field stuff they've had to contend with, as well as the injuries, maybe the the first game is is the place in which Australia could cause them problems. I mean, Tao, what are you expecting from the French? I mean, the two performances against Denmark in the Nations League were pretty listless. They also got beaten by Croatia for the first time. So their form is poor. The question is where those Nations League games fell. Is it oh, more international football, almost an obligation? Now the World Cup is the sole focus. But I almost feel as though the Nations League is a good enough form indicator because, again, this is a World Cup and an international break that's crammed in between the club football. It's not like they get a mental break to go and change gears 
into, into I'm going to say, a tournament mode. They, they actually are doing this right off the back one week after playing their last club game. So if anything, I do think we can read the Nations League form and say, yeah, France are playing badly. The thing is they've just position for position against Australia, they'll be better. The real issue is if Argentina tops the other group and is waiting for second place in this group, that turns France-Denmark into a huge match. And I do think the Danes will probably be better prepared. So they may not have as good a team as the French player for player, but they've beaten them twice. They know how to beat France. And I don't think Didier Deschamps is the sort of manager that is going to put out a system that can beat the Danes. He's going to be largely reliant on the individual talents of the players in his team to go and win themselves the game rather than any particular decision he makes. Whereas the Danish coach, uh, Hillman, I, I feel as though he's going to have a plan for France that can beat them, yeah. Well, I mean, Josh... Do you think Deschamps just runs it back the way that we saw in 2018? Just so lethal on the counter-attack. I mean, don't give them the ball for extended periods, otherwise they'll produce what they produced against Australia. But we saw the way they won the World Cup, just lethal, Mm. just taking chances. Do you think they run it back that way? Or do you think the absences of the likes of Podba and Kante, do we see maybe a change in approach from Deschamps? I mean... Deschamps is not a very creative coach, as Tay has just outlined. But I do think the talent on the pitch automatically changes the way the team plays. Um, Karen Benzema coming off a Ballon d'Or winning season. Yes, he's under an injury cloud, but uh, word is that he he should be available for the first game against Australia. I, I think he changes the way France play. Um, the way he incorporates others and, you know, he, he just provides, I'm sorry, Lockie, much more of a goal threat than Olivier Giroud, who did not score the entire run to the 2018 final. We, whatever about the other, other good things he provided to the team, he did not score. That is a fact. You wrote that. Um, but look, Let's ask Keske. It's I, fact. I, I do think, uh, look, it was interesting that he tried to play a diamond in the Euros. It didn't work. So perhaps he reverts more to uh, a, a more traditional system. But I, yeah, I, I do think that the difference in personnel massively changes how France look. Well, the, we've referenced them a bit, so we'll talk about them now. The Danes. I have the Danes as a potential dark horse to win this entire thing, especially in a tournament that, from the UEFA specifically, doesn't really have a team that stands up and demands attention as Europe's best. Lockie, Josh, what are you expecting to see from the Danes in this World Cup? Well, it, it might be controversial. I, I'm expecting them to, to top this group and, and potentially make quite a deep run. I'm, I'm completely on board with, with your theory, Joey, that, that they are the dark horses of this tournament. I mean, uh, again, there's a, a debate about how much we can analyse Nations League form. And yes, when they played against France, they were playing against a France team that were battling injuries. But they're going to be coming up against that, that same issue as well this time around when they take on their blue. And I think the fact that they did the double over them uh, in the Conference League is going to have a, like, be a massive, massive boost to their confidence. Uh, yes, obviously they drew with Australia the previous World Cup. But I think this Denmark side, well, there are... Still quite a few holdovers from that, that team. The midfield is, is, is largely the same. I think it's a team that, that has improved, especially up front where they've got some really exciting players, uh, Mikael Damsgaard, uh, Andreas Skov Olsen as well. Really exciting wingers who I think could do some damage. And They're going to win the, the games against Tunisia and Australia. I think the big question is just the France game, and I think they can do it. So, yeah. I'm 
are fascinated by their approach to announcing the squad, which is announce 21 players and then have a later announcement for the final five. That's how you build a narrative. That's how you build excitement around a squad announcement. I think every nation should do that. That's fantastic. Some sort of like play-in tournament or just cage match. <laughs> yeah, just exactly. Like, Armageddon hell in Who's a cell. Who's on the plane? <laughs> um, I, I do like the, the talent in this team. Uh, I do, do you think th- like the Danes strike me as one of the biggest teams at this tournament that espouses greater than the sum of their mm. parts. Like, obviously, Ericsson's the headline player, but when they come together, they produce something better than you'd expect based on the names on the team sheet. I also think they were riding a sort of wave of emotion in the last Euros. From that, Ericsson? Yes. And, you know, that is a very powerful, you know, thing to, to, to motivate and draw players together. So they won't necessarily have that this time around, although Ericsson returning to the team is obviously a big factor. What if he returns and then, like, announces his international retirement at the end of the tournament? <laughs> really? I think, yeah, I think it'll still be a pretty big boost to them. Mm. Uh, look, I, I, I do think they've, they've got a good group, but Kasper Schmeichel is so important, and the fact that he's, he's dropped off a bit in the last couple of years and he's moved away from the Premier League, he's not playing at as high a level, I don't know if they're going to be necessarily able to rely on a, on a hot goalkeeper to carry them into a deep run in the tournament. It's I still get they, they get through man. this group. They get through this group, no problems. But Well, Teo, before we move on to the Tunisians, I'll give you the final word. Do you think, what do you think? Are the Danes dark horse contenders or are we just overhyping them? No, I think they'll beat Mexico if they top the group and Mexico finish second in the other group, but I can't see them beating Argentina. So I think there's a ceiling on them. But France isn't necessarily above that ceiling. Well, we will now talk about them. The final team in this group, the the only team that wasn't part of the party back in 2018, Tunisia. There's no bad teams that come out of African qualifying, although at the same time, the Tunisians, if you could have picked a path in this latest African qualifications, you probably would have picked the one that they qualified on. They're... They're not going to do. They're not going to produce anything attackingly beautiful in Qatar, are they? They're going to sit back. It's probably going to be the only game that the Socceroos actually see most of the ball, unless it just outright descends into a competition of who can give the ball away and sit back in their defensive block more. But hammered by Brazil in the lead into this tournament, which has dented some levels of confidence. But before that, wins over the likes of Japan in friendlies, and we saw what Japan did to Australia in the build-up. Josh, is Tunisia, it's been circled by a lot of Australian fans, as the game we are going to win, we're going to beat the Tunisians based purely upon a lack of NRI. What, what do you make of this African side? Well, they haven't put their official squad out yet, which makes it a little tough. Um, but, again, there are not many big names, not many players playing in big leagues. It's easy to, to put a line through them that way. I just think they're going to struggle to score goals. They're definitely defensively disciplined. Um, you know, the head's obviously dropped in that Brazil game, but as a general rule, they're pretty well organised and that's how they got here. I mean, but Brazil would do that to a lot of teams, would That's they? true. And I, Brazil would do that to us. Yes, <laughs> um, famously so. But I, I just don't know how they're going to score goals at a World Cup. I can see Australia drawing nil-nil against them. I can definitely see that happening. So, yeah, because I've pegged that game as sort of like 
like those games you're in Asian qualifying where Australia would have like 70, 75% of the ball for one or two shots on target and it would just descend into almost Adelaide United-like levels of crossing the ball into the box. and That's where Mitch to... Duke comes in. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm saying. Like but... a sporting salmon. We can bring that to the world <laughs> stage. But uh, yeah, it's to be honest, looking at Tunisia, the way they set up, I almost sort of like picked... The France game is a game where Australia is more likely to just jag a point because they'll be able to counterattack versus Tunisia. That's going to be a difficult game, I think. Not not just that, because we tend to play quite poorly against teams that waste time um, and try to keep the ball not in play for as much of the game as possible. Dark arts. I, it, it's frustrating for me that it's the second game because I almost think if it was the third game, it might be a little bit like the Egypt versus Saudi Arabia game in 2018 where both teams decide, hey, one of us is going to win, let's actually leave with a win. But I feel as though with both teams' tournament mathematically still alive, not least because it's played earlier in the day than the other game in the group, even a point is still valuable at that point. So I think Josh's prediction of a nil-all draw is is quite accurate. But also, I would say practice your penalties before this one. And if we're going to see Andrew Redmayne subbed on in a game, I do think it'll be if we concede a penalty to Tunisia in this game. Actually, on that, quick segue, who is Australia's penalty taker at this World Cup? Cummings, if he's on the field. Cummings? Uh, McLaren, if yeah, he's on the field. Yeah, McLaren, if he's on the field. I would go with McLaren if he's on the field as well. Okay. You've got Cummings if he's on the field. If Cummings isn't on the field, who are you going with? I mean, if it's neither Cummings or McLaren, I would probably well, or Craig Goodwin. So those would be my first three choices. I guess I'm probably going with Awa Mabil. Mabil. I'm going with Boyle. He has taken one in a Boyle qualifier. Yeah, I'm going with McLaren if he's on the pitch, and then of the likely starters, I'm going with Boyle to back him up. But all right, Tunisia. Talked about them against Australia. That's going to be a war of attrition from what we can, it's sort of sounding like. Do they have any hope? So they'll open their tournament against the Danes, finish against the French. Do they have any hope of picking up a point in either of those games? I don't think so. I think it'll be very tough for them. And my suspicion, without having you know huge connections to Tunisian football media, uh, I would guess that... I wonder if they're perceived as being negative. As well. <laughs> I guess in the same way that we're looking, or many people are looking at that game as being the one where you know Australia could potentially pick up three points again, Tunisia are probably looking at Australia and thinking exactly well, the same Well, they are. Thing. I've read the previews from yeah. Tunisian journalists. They've got this one circled as three 100%, points. 100%. So, I, yeah. Even if France are mathematically through after the first two games and play a rotated team, I still think they'll beat Tunisia in the third game. But also, I don't. So. That's not an unfair expectation for for Tunisia either. Like, you know, right? There I are think, tears. I think I think write them off at yeah. your peril because, like, you, you mentioned the the win over Japan. Like, it was a three 0 win. They had less of the ball. They struck on the counter. They beat Chile as well in that that friendly cup tournament they played in Japan. Like, there's a pretty big scalps and and teams against whom Australia have struggled before. And false nine, Wabi Kazri, he's a baller. So against no, Harry Sutar, though. Let's let's <laughs> let's not forget. All right. Well, we've gone through all the teams. We've gone through Australia. Give me your predictions. Who's top in this group? Who's going through? Who's coming last? Denmark top, France, uh, Australia, and Tunisia both share a point. And let's you know throw a hat over both of them. France in first place. Denmark in second. Uh, Tunisia ahead of us on goal difference because they ship less goals to France and we draw against them, so one point each. I'm going to say Denmark top, France second, uh, 
Australia third and Tunisia last, and again, one point each, but France need to win that final game after losing to Denmark or drawing with Denmark, and it means they'll fill the boots against Tunisia in the last game. I have the Danes topping the group, France seconds, and like Josh, uh, a that goal difference arrangement for third and fourth in the group. But Get excited for the World Cup, guys. <laughs> we're supposed to be neutral journalists here. I mean... I don't own a cheerleading outfit, but if Football Australia wants to ship me one, go at it. But uh, moving on now, we will move on to the other groups. Stick around for more of ESPN XTNC's World Cup special. I mean, this leads nicely into my tournament prediction, by the way. Ooh. Welcome back to the ever-shifting ESPN XTNC World Cup preview special. It is now time to talk about Group C, a group containing potentially uh, a nation tipped as, well, I've seen them as favourites for some, I've seen Brazil as favourites from others, but Argentina in a group with Saudi Arabia, Mexico and Poland. It's an interesting group, I think. It's one team with a big NRI in Argentina, but then three sides, well, two sides in particular, Mexico and Poland, that will really be duking it out for that second position in the group. And then Saudi Arabia under Ev Renard, the dashing Ev Renard, that will be fancying their chances of an upset. But we'll go with the Argentinians first, Josh. Lionel Messi's last dance, surely it's his last dance. Can he's, he's finally got his international trophy in the coppers. Can he now add a World Cup to that collection? But first, can he top this group? I think Argentina will top the group. Uh, first of all, I'm shocked to see them not playing Nigeria. Like, what's happened? <laughs> what the hell has happened there? Uh, someone, someone's rigged the draw. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think Argentina will qualify from this one relatively comfortably because I don't think any of the other nations are in a good spot to pull an upset. I, I'm not totally convinced by Mexico under, under Tata Martino. They've been a pretty rough watch. And uh, we've talked about CONCACAF not convincing uh, we, we, well, we will in a second, Josh. <laughs> uh, continuity. Yeah, spoiler alert, we're what filming continuity? this out of order. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, Poland were very limited in the Euros when I last had a good look at them. And, you know, Lewandowski just is on an island up front. Lewandowski. Yes, ah. he's Lewandowski, but only if he gets service. Uh, and, he, you know, he's a year older as well. Maybe he can pull some levers. <laughs> no, there are those at Barcelona who do that for him. Uh, and Saudi Arabia, I... I, I don't see them springing a surprise necessarily. So Argentina, I think, are comfortable favourites to top the group. Well, lucky. what should we... They, they've sort of got a Scott in there in McAllister, <laughs> uh, but what should we expect from the way Argentina go about things this World Cup? Well, I'm not sure it'll be hugely, like substantially different from what we've seen of their approach in, in tournaments gone by in the, the Copa Americana, in the World Cup as well. There will be a focus on, you know, brilliance in in transition being a bit more rigid defensively i mean that's kind of going to be the flavor of a lot of teams as it is in international as it is in international football and as a result of that a reliance on on the stars and i think that's where argentina have the edge there is a last dance feel to quite a lot of the teams uh in this tournament there are a lot of outgoing stars it really does feel like the end of an era but as is you know 
conversely to some of the other national teams who are maybe relying on their star players that are getting towards the end of the the end of the road, uh, Messi's a pretty good one to rely on. Not not only because he is and has been the best player in the world, but his actual numbers. He did have a bit of a tapering off the season before, but he's back to his best. I mean, PSG, I saw us. I saw us. Uh, obviously, the the stats being at you know playing in Liga and they're going to be inflated slightly. But looking at his numbers at age thirty five, his numbers are now as good as they were. 10 years ago. It, like that's cr- that is crazy. I, I think it's really interesting that the, the talismans of Argentina and Brazil, these two massive rivals, the players, these two story countries are hoping will drag them to glory. They both play in the same attack in France, in uh, mm. Neymar and Leo Messi. But a bit of red meat for ESPN socials. I want to ask the question, if Leo Messi wins this World Cup with Argentina, does he seal himself as the greatest footballer of all time? Yes, I think is the clear answer here. Um, You know, he has the CV, he has the longevity, the stats are off the charts. And if he adds a World Cup to that collection, I don't think there is uh, anything separating him from, from that status anymore. I mean, I still have Maradona as my number one because of his World Cup success. Because I think to be considered the best player of all time, you need to have won a World Cup. Um, even though his peak was much, much shorter. But uh, if Lionel Messi wins the World Cup, he is the GOAT confirmed. Lucky? Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. I mean, you throw the the copper in there as well, which would have been a a massive, massive weight off the shoulders for Messi. And also, if you just look at how many of the other, uh, as I said before, many of the other international stars are are ageing, coming towards the end of their career, some of them... You know, when we maybe get to talk to, about Portugal, not doing it so gracefully. Messi is still white hot uh, at his age, which is insane. So I think if he adds the World Cup to his uh, large, large list of accolades, I think it'll be yeah, irrefutable that he is the world's best player. I'd be concurring there. I think he can certainly, he's already possibly the best player in the world's history. However, there's a difference in my mind between best and greatest. Greatest carries with it an expectation of accolades. As you said, Josh, I don't think you can be the greatest player of all time without a World Cup trophy. So I think if he does secure that World Cup trophy, he does become the greatest player of all time, which would be amazing for Argentina that have the first and second greatest players of all time with apologies to any Brazilians watching along. But there are three other teams in this group. We touched on them a bit. Lewandowski for Poland. Is it really the case of Poland will go as far as Lewandowski takes them? I think Poland will go as far as their midfield takes them, to be honest. Um, And... You know, they is that pretty... just really a rule of football? It's yes. the midfield stupid? If your star is an out-and-out striker, and I'm not talking Mbappe or Messi... I mean, uh, he's the best pure striker in the world, isn't he? Still? Yes, he is, but it's limiting. Well, second it's limiting for an international team when you can't give the ball to the guy and tell him to dribble. You know, Because he's not a dribbler. Exactly, he? exactly. He's, he's waiting for the ball to get to him in the box, and if you can't get it there... You know, there's a limit to what he can do and how, and that's characterised his entire international career with Poland, unfortunately. Uh, so the performances of uh, the likes of uh, Zielinski uh, in midfield are crucial. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't see this Poland team as having an exceptionally high ceiling, but it is a wide-open group for second spot. Well, Mexico... Sorry, to, we're going to have to hustle along here, Lucky, but Mexico... Perennially the strongest side in CONCACAF, although perhaps speaking to the strength of CONCACAF, Mexico has never reached the heights that 
being a football mad country like they would with such a high population would suggest. I mean, they've certainly racked up junior World Cups over the years, but it's never translated into senior glory. They'll they'll be decent at this. I mean, Ochoa's going to do Ochoa things and just turn into a brick wall, as he does. They always do seem to rise, at least early in World Cups, to the occasion. We saw what they did four years ago um, in that group with Germany. Mm. What are we expecting from them this time around? I don't know. I've got a bit of a kind of this second place spot. I I wanted to initially write off right off Mexico because of the struggles they've had in, in CONCACAF, you know, being behind the, the likes of Canada. But I just feel like it's going to be a bit of a race to the bottom and they might just have enough to be, you know, less bad than than perhaps some of the other teams. And to, to go back to your point, Josh, about, you know, um, Lewandowski being an out-and-out striker, more reliant on... I cut him off, but he's going to get that point in. <laughs> more, more reliant on what other people are allowing him to do. Well, you contrast that with Mexico's biggest attacking threat, as we saw when he uh, sort of broke out, I guess, onto it the world stage in 2018. Yeah. But it, it, Irving Lozano, he's got much more agency as a, as a dynamic wide player or centrally you know, to, to get involved, um, to take people on, create more disturbances and... Honestly, in a group where I think the second place will be decided by pretty fine margins, that may well be enough. But as we all know, it won't go any further than the round of 16 because of the curse. (laughs) The curse. Well, Saudi Arabia as well. It feels weird. Saudi Arabia, they were better than Australia in Asian qualifying. Just they came to a sodden Sydney. I think it was the first game the Socceroos played uh, in Australia after the whole COVID shenanigans. And then by that point, Australia's fate was sealed for the playoffs, but they thoroughly outplayed uh, Australia in Raida. So they are likely better than Australia, but they probably have a worse outlook in terms of points in their group, Mm. I would say. It's... Or, Josh, do you disagree? I can't see them picking up points against Argentina. I think Mexico has too much for them. Do you see them picking up points against Poland or Mexico? They could get a draw against Poland, I think. Um, a lot rests on the shoulders of Salam Aldossari, as it often does. Um, Hervé Renard is a very good international football coach because he knows structure. I would love him to be the Socceroos coach coming out of this cycle. Just so you can look at him on the sideline? Pretty or? much. It, who, who's, uh, you know... Qatar's next top model in terms of the coaches. Is it Casper Hillman? Could, you, could you imagine if we had Tony Gustafsson in his scarf coaching the Matildas <laughs> and then Irv uh, Renard coaching the Socceroos? Well, when you have a guy We'd like that... We'd have the best-looking coaching staff in world football. And he projects confidence, you know? He projects confidence. Now, he, he knows structure. He knows international football. He's going to make them hard to beat. Uh, but I don't think they pick up a win. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Their whole brand has been basically not losing as opposed to winning. And look... You can talk about how much you might like to see the eye candy of her uh, on the sidelines as soccer is uh, manager. In terms of the foot- as an X's and O's, I think he'd do a good job as well. Ah, but in terms of the football they've been playing, I mean, it's it's not really. I, for, look, for neutral observers, if you're looking for a sort of exciting game to jump on and watch, my tip would be don't make it a Saudi Arabia game. Looking looking at their their form throughout the qualification, and yes, they did do better than Australia. Eleven games they've played throughout the Arab Cup and the qualifying. Uh, have had one goal in them, three nil nils. You know, you know the, the most amount of goals scored in a in a Saudi Arabia game in the lead up to the World Cup. Is it three? Two. Two. 
One and, and one time that was a two 0 loss to Japan. I think that was a one all draw. They're not an exciting team. They will be playing to nick whatever they can and you know exploit weaknesses in the opposition. And I do think that that only gets you so far, and it particularly only gets you so far when each team does have a at least one, and in some cases more than one, uh, discernible sort of star player. Right. Well, predictions. I'm taking it as red. We're all tipping Argentina to top this group. Who comes second? Mexico. For me, I think the curse repeats. As Lockie mentioned earlier, the round of 16 curse, they go out in the next round, but I think they snag second place. I'm with Josh. I've got Mexico finishing seconds, and I'm guessing Poland's and Saudi Arabia third and fourth for you as well, Josh? I think so. Lockie? I'm going to be... Going with Poland in second, just because uh, we can't let the the TNC hive mind affect us too deeply. I'm gonna you know heal off. I'm gonna get a zag, uh, and then it'll be Saturday over bottom, uh, and yeah, Mexico in third. Of, fancy bit of Carol Linetti, dude. <laughs> yeah, why not? Well, why not? stay tuned. We've got more of ESPN X TNC's World Cup special to come. Welcome back to ESPN X TNC's World Cup specials previews, but it is time to move on to. Well, off-air we were having discussions as to whether or not this represents the group of Jeff or the group of death at the 2022 FIFA World Cup. It is Group A, Spain, Costa Rica, Germany and Japan. Well, Lockie, you didn't seem to think it was. Why not? Well, initially I thought that that Germany and, and Spain were sort of the clear and obvious candidates to go through. And I think they still are. I am maybe having some... Disrespecting Asia. Yeah, like perhaps. Perhaps I'm, I'm I'm being a bit unfair to to Japan in 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 that assessment. Although there's some weird suggestions in that Japan, Japanese squad. Some weird it? selections, yeah. Mm. Some some really curious ones that we'll, we'll get to talk about. I, I I don't. I mean, insofar as any group at this particular World Cup is the group of death, I think this is probably along with the the Portugal, Uruguay, Ghana, South Korea group as being the closest. Because um, I think the question of how much, I mean. Germany was so bad at the previous World Cup. I guess the, the question over how much they've actually improved and returned to their former powerhouse selves is, is one that I, I guess we'll answer in this preview. Well, we're talking about Germany, so let's move right on to it. Josh Parrish, what are you expecting from the Mannschaft? I mean, it can only go better than it went last time, right? <laughs> I love that. Just, just low, it has to. The only <laughs> low way, bar. The only way from here is up. Um, and they're finally out from under the shadow of, uh, of Jürgi Lowe, first World Cup without him in a long time. So no bogeys to be eaten um, or uh, other bodily excretions. Um, so I, I'm optimistic about Germany um, doing better than they did last time. I don't think they're going to win the tournament, um, but they have a right young manager and... You know, they play a relatively expansive brand in comparison to a lot of the other teams in this tournament. So I think we could see a pretty interesting uh, match against Spain because I think both teams will open up a little bit just mm. thanks to the preferences of their coaches. I don't think it's a group of death because I think they're... Honestly, I hate to be the, the normie here, but I do think uh, they're a clear one and two seed and the um, it has to have at least three super high-profile teams to be... Um, to be classified as a group of death. So I don't think there is one at this World Cup. Well, I mean, Lockie, Germany, the stereotype surrounding Germany, the Mannschaft, which sounds like machine in English, even though it's actually just, it doesn't translate to that to German, but the, the, the stereotype is just very clean, efficient, no-nonsense, just win football matches. But they do actually like to play football, don't they? Yeah, and it's, it's, it's a very... St- 
you know, not dissimilar to we saw of, of Bayern under under Hansi Flick as well. It's it's very dynamic. It's high energy. There will be sort of it's high you know, energy. Yeah, good high energy. There, 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 you know, there will be positional rotations. There will be players who will function in a role that might allow them to do a couple of different things. You know, the sort of the Kimmich role, I guess. Uh, that's something that that he'll be involved in doing. And I, I don't know if it's enough to this brand of football uh, against sort of another team who have a very traditional identity uh, in which they play, which is Spain. It's enough to see them go ahead of, uh, of Spain in this group, but it'll have them there or thereabouts. I, I think Germany and Hansi Flick in particular, uh, they're big fans of automatisms as they're known in today's football, which is like rehearsed moves. Mm. And in club football, I find that a bit limiting because, you know, you're basically not letting players make their own decisions. But in international football, I don't mind it because you have such less time with the players. So if you if you do have essentially set pieces in open play, I think that can be quite effective. And, well, and basically bringing the NFL to... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, Hansi Flick might have been the coach that wanted he- uh, earpieces. Um, or maybe that was Nagelsmann. I, can't call- I think it might have been Nagelsmann, but they come from the same school, you know. Yeah, well, just realised I should have done my German accent now for this entire group stage. Oh but no, is, please yeah, spare us. That, that has gone out the window. So we will talk about the Spanish now, La Roja, the other big NRI team in this group. They've got their World Cup now, as we were discussing uh, earlier in the show, leaving the Netherlands as the maybe best footballing nation to never win a World Cup. But Spain, La Roja, and the Luis Enrique, Lucky Flanagan. Are we expecting more tiki-taka, more beautiful football from the Spanish? What are you... Well, that's the stereotype, but as we already said, stereotypes can be deceiving. What are you expecting? Oh, I, I think we will see more of that, that Spain, uh, nothing if not uh, wedded to their ideology on, on the world stage, and rightfully so. It's delivered them success on a, on a great many occasions. I think the big thing for them this uh, this tournament will be the official changing of the guard. We've seen them sort of go through a, a period of, of, of struggle um, but are starting to build the sort of new crop of players uh, are coming through and it's going to be headlined by, you know, the, the likes of, of Gavi and, you know, the, the two Barcelona young stars that are coming through in this midfield. This is going to be their time, I think, to really say this is our team basically for, for, for the next decade. Well, is Spain... Not favourites of 2022. Are Spain favourites of 2030? For 2026, sorry? I think that's a, a reasonable prediction to, to make. Like, like I said, there, there are a number of talents. I mean, I haven't even mentioned Ansu Fati as well, who's playing further afield. They're all so young. They've got pretty much two World Cup cycles to go through where they'll be at their peak, like pretty close to, for both tournaments. Um, yeah, if it's not 2026, then maybe 2030 is going to be their opportunity. I fail to see them not winning one of those two. Well, Josh, Japan, they did it relatively com- comfortably in Asian qualifying uh, in Saudi Arabia and Australia's group, consigning Australia to a playoff. Moriyasu, their coach, is pragmatic. He's conservative. Do you think he's been a bit too conservative with his squad selection for this World Cup? Well, that depends on whether you ask Celtic Twitter or not, because Kyogo Furuhashi and Rayo Hatate are pretty big omissions, and he's gone with uh, local J-League players in their stead. How much are you buying into... I saw some conspiracy theories online that he's got a bit of a rivalry with Ange because of Yokohama, and he didn't call up Celtic players because of that. I I wouldn't dare broach the subject of internal Japanese coaching (laughs) politics, but um, uh, because I have no idea. Uh, But I... I think it's it's easy to forget that when the soccer has faced Japan in Japan, 
he was on the brink of the sack. Mm. He was about to be sacked. Yeah, reports that were game. that if he lost, well, if he didn't pick up three points, he was gone. So basically, you know, Graham Arnold gave him his job back <laughs> by, with his team selection in that game. Good playing guy, Graham. Millionaire. Play, play, Good guy, Graham Arnold, yeah. stepping in once again. He said, look, we're just going to play Aaron Moore on the wing because that makes sense. Um, <laughs> look, I, I, I don't rate him as a coach, especially. I think they have a great crop of players, but I don't think he's maximising them. And therefore, I don't think they're getting out of this group because... It, Honestly, it's going to take a huge upset um, for them to, to break into the top two, and I just don't think they have it. Well, Lockie, what has to go right for the Blue Samurai to get out of this group? I think, I mean, they certainly need to score a lot more goals than they've been doing. Scoring the, goals it, generally it, helps winning in games. In the lead up. No, but, but in the face of other teams who are going to have high quality, you know, they've only scored, I think, 10 goals in their previous 12 games. Like, it's, it's pretty lean when you're coming up against teams who do have. Um, certified uh, either attacking or midfield talents like Spain and, and Germany do. That said, though, Spain will be dealing with um, problems of their own in the striking department because I know some people uh, are not always overly convinced with uh, Alvaro Morata as a number nine. Whereas Germany won't have one at all. He doesn't have it in the tournaments. He just doesn't have... He's just not made of the right stuff. I'm sorry. But Alvaro Morata, as much as I admire... He's not a big game player. He's not a baller. As much as I admire his his movement and his intelligence on the pitch and the amount of chances that teams that he plays in generate as a result of that, he just can't convert them. He has the yips. And we saw it in the Euros. They should have beaten Italy. They should have gone through to the final and they didn't. And a lot of that was down to Morata's uh, poor finishing. We, we are coming into a tournament where the defending champions didn't have their centre forward score a single goal in the league sure. into the final though. But he wasn't missing glaring opportunities. Okay, he was okay. he was pinning the centre backs to create space for the players around okay, him. And okay, and Murata gets in his own head and then all the headlines become about him. And you know, Luis Enrique loves him and he will back him to the hilt, but I don't think Alvaro Murata is winning a World Cup for Spain. Well Costa Rica. This is can, the, this can is they... the streets won't forget team. <laughs> <laughs> are, are you backing them to pick up a point, Josh? I mean, they'll be tough to break down. I don't know how many sides we've said that about in, <laughs> in this it's tournament. The, it's the theme. Uh, but, gee, they're, they're really rolling it back, aren't they? Like, you know, Brian Ruiz. Oh, Brian Oviedo <laughs> as well. Oviedo. It's incredible. I love it. Um, I love this. Uh, it, look, they're, they're going to play much the same way as we have seen them play in previous tournaments. I think they peaked in 2010. <laughs> 12 years ago. Yeah, <laughs> I did. I, I'm, I'm sure you remember it, Joey. <laughs> to be fair, Australia peaked in 2006, so it's even longer. <laughs> so, But they're still rolling out some of the same blokes. Joel Campbell is in this squad. Joel Campbell. Oh. Is he still on loan from Arsenal? <laughs> Wasn't he playing for Arsenal when they had the blood maroon Oxford kids? <laughs> He's only like 32 or something. Oh, I'm not, I'm not a 100% like not convinced that he isn't still contracted at some point. Like, oh yeah, he's back now. Just no, he's been he's by the oh, no, that Joel Campbell guy. I know he's been here the whole time. Or just he's like Arsenal time. have right of first refusal on like any new deal that he signs, they can sign him first. All right, predictions. Who gets out of this group? I, all right, Josh and Lockie, are either of you tipping anybody other than Spain and Germany to top this group? No. No. Nah. All right. Are you tipping Japan third? Yeah. Yes. Costa Rica last? <laughs> Correct. Yes. All right. We're all in agreement. <laughs> Thanks and success. We'll be back <laughs> with more of ESPN XTNT's World Cup special. 
Oh, welcome back to the ESPN X TNC World Cup special. It's getting a little bit silly here. Teo Pelizzeri has stepped through the teleportation portal between Ultra Football Sydney and Ultra Football Melbourne. He is back with us as we look at Group F of the tournament. Belgium, or should I say Flavortown, Canada, Morocco and Croatia. It's an interesting group, this one, sort of like, like not quite, at least on an NRA basis, top teams, but like Belgium and Croatia, they're very good. You've got the Canadians, who our North American friends will obviously have a lot of interest in. Morocco as well, always. Yeah, they're always fun to watch every four years. They're one of those teams you like get invested in every four years, but really enjoy it when you do. What have you made of this group? Well, I mean, I am excited to see Belgium flop. That's what I'm excited about this group. You're yeah. on my corner. That was my big prediction. <laughs> I don't I think, think it's... A, it's I, I, I'm beginning to quickly realise that it's, it's actually probably the majority opinion on oh, this previous no. I think it's a couch-wide opinion. Yeah. Uh, really? So who's, who's going to zig the TNC hive, give them to go through? The TNC hive brain in action once again. All right, I'll, We did I, not discuss this beforehand, by no, the way. I, I will be the... De- like. To use one of Nick Nabano's favourite phrases, I will be the devil's advocate and advocate for Belgium for the rest of this preview. But go on, Taylor. Look, I, is this group, Kevin De Bruyne assists? Is no. this group a moot point because it's almost certainly going to be Spain Germany waiting in the first knockout round, regardless of whatever Quinella they finish? Just imagine that you get out of this group. Oh, hello there! No, but welcome that, to the under sixteen. That, I hope you enjoyed Qatar. Now you're going to leave. Yeah, you know, I'm glad the World Cup's not in Germany. But the. Um, <laughs> The, the group itself, um, Canada's the great, I think, unknown as to how they will go against world-class opposition. They got through CONCACAF qualifying, but I think there's mounting evidence that CONCACAF just isn't very good. And that's what has created the perfect storm for Canada to finally ascend and rise back up to the top. Croatia, you know, treating it as Modric's last dance, one last hurrah, so much politics that... That was supposed to be 2018, but well, whatever. <laughs> so much politics that tends to be tied up in the selections and, and how the team plays, and obviously so much scrutiny from the fans as well as to what they do minute by minute of every game. And then we've got this Belgian team that everyone wants to point and go, ha-ha, Roberto Martinez, but that's not the reason that I don't think Belgium's getting through the group. The reason... I don't think Belgium's getting through the group is because the players collectively, with one exception, the game where they rode their luck against Brazil in the 2018 World Cup quarterfinal, they are serial under-deliverers mm. at major tournaments. And and even then, Brazil had some... I, I can't remember what the XG was of that 2018 World Cup quarterfinal, but it's outrageous that Brazil didn't take the lead didn't open the scoring in that game and didn't effectively leave the Belgians behind and then they got hit by two goals back the other way. A Belgian team that were lucky to be there to begin with, having come back from 2-0 down against Japan previously. We saw them go out of the Euros fairly tamely, I thought, to Italy. And you can take as much away from their Nations League form as they as you want, but I just don't think at major tournaments they're the team with the right mix of, of mentality but also uh, implementation to be able to go on and win something like this. Well... The counter-argument inevitably can be they've got potentially the best goalkeeper in the world, they've got potentially the best in Courtois, they've got potentially the best midfielder in the world in Kevin De Bruyne, although I know TNC... They're going to be playing against him, actually. (laughs) Yes, yes. TNC, Luka Modric stands, yes, but the argument can be made that they've got the best goalkeeper, the best midfielder in the world, they've got Romelu Lukaku, they've got just so much individual talent Josh, tell me why I'm wrong on that. I think this team has aged out of relevance. Mm. 
I mean, Aiden Hazard is no longer Aiden Hazard, really. Um, you know, they, they, they're big opportunities. Has Kevin De Bruyne been surpassed by Jake Brimmer? No, Kevin De Bruyne <laughs> is still in his prime, clearly. And he's the most elite provider of a final ball in world football. In terms of that kind of early cross from the inside right channel, there's no one better. But Lukaku has never been maximised for, for Belgium. He's better in a strike pairing uh, where he can basically face goal all the time. And, uh, you know, that game that you mentioned, Teo, against Brazil, we saw the best of Lukaku in a counter-attacking role when he was almost playing off the right-hand side, not up front, because he could dribble and run at players. He's good when he picks up speed, Lukaku. But, yeah, I, I think a lot of this... It's the back line. It's Vertonghen, yes. Alderweireld, uh, Boyata, Denier, and then guys with less than five caps. I mean, that's just not a World Cup winning defence. Yes, their, their chance was four years ago, and they blew it. They blew it against France, so um, or against uh, Brazil, sorry. So um, No, no, against France. It was against France, sorry. They beat. <laughs> but, all right. I'm misremembering here, but this, this defence is, is just creaky, isn't it? I can't believe we're still seeing the same names there. Well, this is the thing. Is that this is my big problem with, with Belgium. Is I just feel like this whole World Cup cycle, I've watched the same team on a loop because the team is largely very similar to what we saw in 2018, where also... They were, were pretty poor. They, they've never been a team that's impressed me a great deal. And the defence is weak. They haven't really rejuvenated all that much. Like, And Eden Hazard's career has fallen off a cliff. I think he's played four La Liga games this season. And, and somehow I have read in so many different previews of, of Belgium of what to expect that he'll be one of the standouts. He's barely played. Like, I just don't think this team have enough compared to some of the other players uh, you know, cream of the crop nations to really go the distance. But, but, that's, but that's also our argument is they're not even getting out of the group. Mm. So I guess I'm making the case that Canada might be the team that gets there, but it wouldn't shock me if it was Morocco that finished second in this group because they, I just feel as though Belgium will will fluff their lines against one of those two teams and they'll be the beneficiary that gets into second in the group. Well, so from the sounds of it, talking about battles for seconds... Is the consensus from the people that I'm looking at here that Croatia tops this group? Yes. Yes. Croatia tops Tell it. me why. Because, I mean, they've got a great next generation of players backing up the likes of Modric. So, you know, Rakitic is, is now retired from international football. Uh, but, you know, Nikola Vlasic, um, Brozovic still at the top of his is game. Is Brozovic the best holding midfielder in the world still? He's up there. He's certainly up there. Um, and he's more, probably the most versatile and the broader skill set out of all of the, the top-holding midfielders. And this next generation in defence uh, with Gvardiol uh, so leading. So. And yes, uh, th- they are very impressive. Uh, so they're going to have a solid back line to, to back up the, the midfield supremacy. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about Croatia's performances because Luka Modric does, ha- does have a pretty capable supporting cast and they've had the wisdom and foresight to leave out Ante Rebic. Well... <laughs> Well, Rebic, rest in peace, just runs for run's sake. But speaking to somebody who is very familiar with the Croatian team and now lives on an alien spaceship, they have constantly railed against Croatia's coaching. Is that what's going to hold them back? The players have always coached this team. It's not, let's not... This is... Modric is the on-field so coach. Yeah. This is like France 2006. You know, the, the guy in charge is not the guy in charge. Modric is the coach on the field. 
Yeah, I don't have much to add. I, I just feel as though Belgium's flaws will become apparent. Uh, Morocco is the wild card. Do we? Do, does anyone see them? I could plausibly see them getting through this group. They were really competitive in 2018. Obviously, you know, uh, Egypt and Senegal had the the measure of Africa at the most recent Afcon. Morocco weren't there as contenders, but they've also had their own issues um, with players in exile and then trying to change management to get them to come back. So, do do we think that? I think to like upheaval like that, the build up to this whole thing. I mean. Iran's doing it as well, but I can't in a group like this. I can't see it working out for them. I think I'm more intrigued by the Canadians. I don't know. I, I'm I'm going to back in Morocco to potentially be the team who causes the upset. I think on paper there is a, a lot of quality there, particularly in some key positions. Like uh, yes, in Bono, the the keeper is one who I really rate highly. They've got the likes of uh, Sofian Amrabat from Serie A playing in the midfield. There's Amin Harit. Uh, Sofian Bufal. There are some good players in there that I think will... Hakimi Ziyech. Well, I, wanna, I, I left I left Hakimi to last because the other reason I maybe am so high on Morocco is I have quite a lot of sympathy for them, which is uh, the, because of the fact that arguably their two best players, uh, Masraoui and Ashraf Hakimi, play the same position. Now, as a Scottish football <laughs> fan, I know very much what it's like to have two players who are very good but play the same position. It looks like Hakimi will play at left-back, Masraoui at right, but... Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of talent in this team. I wouldn't be surprised to see them finish in second. Now, before we get to the predictions, Canada, we can talk about them a little bit more. Alfonso Davis FC, maybe, but... Jonathan David, Jonathan too. David, Jonathan yeah. David, yeah. Uh, I think they might be slightly more likely to upset Belgium, just because we talked about that creaky ageing backline. And Canada and zoom, 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 pace, zoom. Yes. Pace on for days. What's the order of games as well? Uh, that, sorry to ask a question without notice, but as far as... As we all reflexively go to our phones. No, but that could also be a factor. If Canada is a PNP team, then maybe they'll get better as the group goes on, as opposed to a Belgian team that might struggle to the finish line. Uh, so for Canada, it's Belgium, Croatia, Morocco. So Okay, so Belgium first. Belgium first. They really would have preferred them third, mm. I imagine. Yeah. So. No, I'm still... Uh, look, Canada's got... Uh, amazingly, they've somehow got high NRI within this team. Is, <laughs> no, it's true. It's but true. Is that one of the reasons that we like them to pull off upsets? I mean, I watched some of the... The impact of Carl Robinson on Canadian football still holds strong. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I watched some of the Canadian qualifiers on, on dodgy streams. I, I've got to say that, you know, it's not inspiring football, but I still think it can... can do a job here and that's, at, at, the, at the World Cup, especially yeah. these tournaments. That's uninspiring football can work, as I said during the England game. It's uh, during the England preview. I guess the, the one disadvantage they have is they can't play in frozen tundra. They can't play in snow. Can they? Can they go and tinker? Yeah, with turn the, the air the conditioning stadium, stadium up <laughs> to make it like <laughs> a, a, a blizzard inside the stadium. That might be the thing that helps get them over the line. Like that it was the game against Jamaica. They played where yeah. it was like minus twenty degrees. Yeah, yeah like, just, that actually the sequel to Cool Running. Just I mean, 2026 World Cup, we're on notice. We've been warned. We want to get drawn in a Mexico-based group. Oh, I just want to get drawn in that. 100,000 people watching the soccer is at the stadium. I just want to get drawn in a group. Right, we're getting off track. <laughs> we're getting off track. I want your predictions before Teo has to step through the portal uh, at Ultra Football once more. Who's topping Group F? Who's going home? What's the go? Croatia, Morocco, Belgium just miss out, and then Canada at the foot of the group table. Over the course of this chat, I've talked myself into to Belgium sneaking through in second just because the quality stole my the quality isn't quite there in the other two teams. So Croatia to top the group, Belgium uh, will go through in second and they'll like it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, I'll say Canada third, Morocco, bottom of the group. I'm going to go Croatia, Canada, Morocco, Belgium last. They'll be the team that everyone, they'll be the big flop team. Okay, uh, Croatia, Belgium, Canada, Morocco. And uh, they'll actually be setting their jerseys on fire instead of just having the flames. Taking them to Flavortown. That is all it for Group F. We do also have to say goodbye to Teo Pelizzari now. He's going to depart, but before you go, Teo, I'm not going to let you get away that easy. Who wins the... I let Harrow get away that easy, and I'm not doing it again. Who wins the World Cup? Portugal. I'll get stuffed. (laughs) A good note on which to leave. (laughs) Stay tuned for more. Welcome back. Yet more of ESPN XTNC's World Cup special, Group G. Real G's group, this one. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Brazil, Serbia, Switzerland, and Cameroon. Another very worldly group featuring one of two sides widely predicted as potential winners of this tournament in the Brazilians. Neymar is trying to chase down Pele as uh, Brazil's all-time greatest goal scorer. He's the same age as Pele when he retired from international football. Of course, Pele won this tournament on a number of occasions. Neymar still looking for his breakthrough. We're talking... A lot of this build-up to this tournament is going to talk about Leo Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo and them getting their defining moments. Is Neymar sort of in that same sort of category, you think, Josh? I'm not sure he is anymore. Um, Look, he's also going to be demoralised by the Brazilian election result. Let's not forget that. (laughs) Uh, this, this, we've rolled it back again, much like uh, Australia's group. The three of the same four teams as, as in 2018. I think it's a pretty straightforward group for Brazil. Uh, I think Gabriel Jesus could be the guy, given the form that he's in at Arsenal. Mm. So I, I'm, I think they'll, they'll be good, but I don't think Neymar is going to have some crowning moment. I think it's going to be more of the, the team coming together uh, under a good coach who's coached them for a long time now. Continuity is one of the big things mm. in the World Cup that can help you, Josh. Not Josh, Lucky Flanagan. It's That's been right. a long day. We're pretty interchangeable. Yeah, it's, been a, it's been a long day at Ultra Football Melbourne, ladies and gentlemen. Lucky, Brazil, is there any way Brazil don't top this group in your minds? No, I think it's it's almost impossible. And I think along the way, they will do it scoring a lot of goals. I think they've six or seven games they've played, I think, in the lead up to this cup. They've scored three plus, uh, including belting Tunisia 5-1 most recently. Uh, it's a great result for Aussie fans watching on, seeing Tunisia get pelted. All the soccerers need to do is play like Brazil. Easy. Yeah, exactly. I don't know why, not, I don't know why more so people it's, don't do it's, it. It's that simple, yeah. no. Yeah. We tried playing like Liverpool, but No, maybe sorry. <laughs> yeah, they scrap the Aussie DNA. More Brazilian DNA. That's what we're really after. No, but, but seriously, I think they'll get through pretty comfortably. Um, it just remains to be seen sort of Who's responsible for, for the goal scoring? Who gets the, the most? Because they, will, they can come from uh, uh, across the park. And quite often recently, they, they come from Richarlison too, which is a bit of a surprise given his struggles at club level of late. I think Richarlison fits really nicely into this team because he has the instinct to run beyond the defence. And so many of their other players, Neymar especially, like to come towards the ball. So he's like a nice balance point and he's often the beneficiary of the good lead-up work done by other players. But let's not forget Vinicius Jr. is in this squad. Mm. Whether he starts is another question. But, you know, on his day, he's one of the one of the most dangerous players in world football. So I think there is one glaring omission from this Brazil squad, Firmino. and that's Roberto Firmino, who has never really been given a fair shake by, by Chiche. Uh, but I also think there's one glaring uh, <laughs> inclusion, and that is Danny Alves at the age of 39. Surely he's just there as, like, vibes. And can, can, I, can I just add to that? I, I mean, is he there if it's a 23-player squad? 
Possibly not. He knows the dressing room, Joey. He knows the dressing room. Yeah, I did yeah. want to throw in, though, uh, I couldn't help but notice Emerson Royale uh, <laughs> posting his disappointment on social media <laughs> at not making the Brazil squad. And I would also just like to take this moment to say um, I'm very disappointed, Graham Arnold, that I wasn't considered. Uh, I can do a job. Well, you certainly weren't getting called up for Scotland for the World <laughs> Cup. But um, Serbia, and, Serbia and Switzerland, the two European representatives in this pool, another rematch from what was spicy uh, meeting back in uh, 2018. What are we expecting from these two sides? Uh, have Switzerland called up Harris Seferovic again? Or have they left him out? <laughs> yes, he's in the squad. Okay, they uh, they're going to flop. Why? Because, you know, he's, he's in the Murata zone of missing glaring big chances in, in huge games. Harris Seferovic... Can you imagine playing? Can no you imagine ticker. playing this clip with no context to Alvaro Morata being compared to Harris Seferovic? No, I'm talking about in the square foot of real estate that really counts. I right hope, up here. I, I, I don't think Morata would see it that way, Josh. <laughs> I hope all of our viewers appreciate that. You know, we're not just negative about Australian football on TNC. No, we hate everybody. We slander everybody. We're haven't, equal opportunities. Uh, yeah, slanderers. Haven't here. you heard of our sister podcast, El Curriculo Nacional? <laughs> <laughs> all right, tell me about Serbia. Lucky Flanagan. Well, Serbia have had quite um, a, an interesting approach they've been taking uh, I mean, in the lead-up. Is Mitrovic about to become just god mode? I, I mean, I genuinely think he could. He's had a... Uh, and, and Josh, you would, you would know this as well. He's had a pretty rip-roaring start to the Premier League season. Like... It's hard to believe that this guy who just perennially bounces up and down with this Fulham team, you know, from the championship into the Premier League is able to continue to score goals at, at such a rate. But he well, has had a good... A good lead-up. The lights of West London are bright. Maybe not so bright in <laughs> Serbia. That's true. But uh, he's also playing alongside, um, uh, you know, often when they play in a three at the back formation, alongside Dusan uh, Vlahovic. I know that he hasn't had a really profitable time, uh, you know, since he's moved across to Juventus, but he is a striker, you know, that has clearly quite a lot of talent, will be the line leader. And... That's a lot of firepower for other teams to, to have to deal with, and I think that will we'll see them through. But uh, the three at the back also lets them uh, get a lot out of Philip Kostic as well. So I think there are a lot of elements to like about the approach they've been taking into this tournament, and I could see it uh, getting them into the knockouts. Well, the other team in the group, Cameroon, the Indomitable Lions, perennially... You know, another one of these teams that every four years, maybe when the Socceroos get knocked out, people are looking for a different one. They go to Cameroon. Memories of 1990. Wave uh, your flag. Yeah, wave your flag. What are we expecting from the Cameroonians this time around? I'm excited by... I mean, you spoke about a Fulham player there in Mitrovic. I'm excited by an ex-Fulham player in this Cameroonian midfield in Andre Frank Zambo Ongisa. Oh, yes. What a name. Great what a shit. player. And it, legitimately... Tearing it up for Napoli at the moment. One of the most exciting teams in world football. I mean, pretty much Napoli. Just anybody attached with them at the moment is he's just flying. He's absolutely stonks. flying. And uh, Brian Mbwemo, let's not forget, he's playing for Cameroon in this tournament. And, you know, I mean, just look at that guy. He's like Hercules made flesh. He's, he's <laughs> incredible. Um, just what a physical specimen he is for Brentford. Wow. So oh, they've got a, quite a, a hard-working kind of front line. They're going to be uh, closing teams down first line of defense it's their actual line of defense that actually that concerns me uh, where you know the the players the, the leagues they're playing in i'm not going to claim to know too much about you know likes of collins fi or uh nicholas uh Nkolu, but i mean nicholas Nkolu is, is a former like a you know 
top level European centre back playing in that's France. True. But right now he's 32 and playing for Aris Thessaloniki. So yes, um, there, there's not, not, a, not a huge amount of pedigree and not a huge, huge amount of depth in their defensive line. So I think that's where they're going to struggle. So from the sounds of things, we'll get to the predictions once again. I'll ask everybody: Is anybody objecting to me saying Brazil top this group? No. No. All right. Who finishes second? I'm going to go with Serbia. I'm going to go with Serbia. I'm going to go with Serbia as well, and I think Switzerland finished bottom. Not a big plus there from Josh Parrish. No. Uh, I have the Serbs also finishing second, but I have the Swiss finishing third. Lucky? Yeah, I, I, I said before I think Serbia go through. I wouldn't be surprised if... No, I mean, where do you have the Swiss? Oh, where do I have the Swiss? Nah, third, third. And oh. it, it'll, be, it'll be tight because Jan Sommer... Could go beast mode. We know he likes to do that sometimes. The id's playing the Ochoa role. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're almost there. One group to go. Group H. Stick around for more of ESPN X TNC's World Cup special. We are on to the final group of the group stages. Funny that. It is Group H. Final group is H. Uh, the Portugal, Ghana, Uruguay, South Korea group. It... We were t- discussing off air. It's a very World Cup-ish group, isn't it, Josh? This is my favourite group of the whole lot because you have that really intriguing mix of a South American, African, Asian, and European side all in the one pot. And I, I'm yeah, I'm really excited about it because it's wide open. Well, we'll start with maybe the highest NRI team in the tournament because of one specific high NRI player. Uh, the Portuguese, Cristiano Ronaldo's, surely it's his last ride. Um, his age, let's face it, he's stinking he's the, the joint up for Man United and being a toxic locker room presence. Is it going to go any better in international football, Lockie Flanagan? It's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to see. I mean, the, the run into the tournament, I think, when the games have been so condensed, uh, the club form is very, very important. And... Look, uh, we were talking about uh, Argentina before and how good Messi has been leading into this tournament and how that stands Argentina in good stead. Uh, Portugal is sort of the, the, the opposite. I mean, Cristiano Ronaldo, not only is he playing terribly for Manchester United, if he's even playing at all, um, the off-field stuff really, really muddies the waters. And, you know, it's, it's not like this isn't a dressing room that, over which Cristiano Ronaldo already had a lot of influence in previous tournaments. I mean, this guy was literally the manager in the 2016 Euro final. How disruptive of, a, of an influence do you think he's going to be if things start to go poorly? I think this could... It runs the risk of unbundling for Portugal, but I think it's it's going to be boom or bust. I think it's either going to go spectacularly well and Ronaldo, realising that this is his sort of last ride, is going to go beast mode somehow uh, in amongst some of the other talents that Portugal have got or it crashes and burns in flames and they are out before the knockouts. Because he's not getting dropped, is he? I mean, there's no Ten Hag there to send him to the bench well, or anything. He's going to start it, or it, That depends game, on uh, how much cojones Fernando Santos really has. I think Portuguese fans would tell us not enough to bench Cristiano no, Ronaldo. No. I think it takes a brave man. Although Eric Ten Hag doesn't send whatever. I mean, <laughs> my question is how long is Fernando Santos going to coast on the Euro 2016 victory. I mean, didn't he give an interview recently where he said, my job's safe? Yeah, it seems to How does to he be. have an iron grip on the national team manager position for this country? I don't because get it. Because Jose Mourinho hasn't shown an inclination to get out of club football yet. I think that's the reason. Huh. And 
look, Santos, I have many objections to his coaching. <laughs> I think he's incredibly conservative. I don't think he's, he's tried to refresh the team. He's, he's clung on to the generation of players that had that shock Euros victory that they never deserved. I'm, I'm not high on this Portuguese team, as you can tell. Okay. Before I move on, does anybody have anything nice to say about the Portuguese? I actually have more bad things to say <laughs> oh, about right. Portugal. Right. To right. Be right. Somebody give me some. Somebody say something nice about the Portuguese. Oh God! Even their kits are awful. Jesus. Uh, Rafa Liao is in great form. Yes. Bang! Rafa Liao, go on, son. Uh, Ghana and Uruguay, the rematch. Oh, honest, the rematch. Honestly, this could have been the. Best group in the World Cup if it was just Ghana and Uruguay. Like a, a tri-series <laughs> tournament. Just play three games. It's all grudge matches. I'm, I'm sick to my stomach that Asamoah Gyan is not going to get a call up for this. For the <laughs> it feels wrong. Whoever's wearing the number three has a really big responsibility to bear. Well, I mean, Luis Suarez is still going to be there for Uruguay. Um, he's... <clears throat> That, that legendary strike partnership they had isn't going to be there, but Suarez will be. What are we expecting from them? I think it's an ageing generation of players with some notable exceptions. Not um, quite Costa Rica, though, levels. Like no, this no. group didn't peak 12 <laughs> Not years quite. ago. Um, I, I'm excited about Fede Valverde's form, um, but he's going to have to play a more creative role for Uruguay than he plays for Madrid. Uh, he's sort of the legs in that Madrid midfield. Um, whereas for, for Uruguay, they don't have the kind of star number 10 playmaker. They, they tend to play a pretty narrow kind of 4-4-2 four, four, system, uh, or they have in the past anyway. I, I don't know if that's adapted. Well, they, they do Barney, s- adapt and shift things up a little bit more now, so that's going to be interesting to see. But, lucky Uruguay, they're always... like they, they, go, they can go on a run. We've seen it. I mean, is this a tournament they can do so? Yeah, I, I think so. And, and, and many of the reasons that I think they could in this tournament is similar to the reasons that I thought they did quite well and could have done quite well uh, in the 2018 edition because... I think they've got some really talented midfielders coming through. Obviously, the, the strikers are where everyone seems to focus their attention. But I really like the, the players they've got coming through in this midfield. I think this has potential to be uh, Fede Valverde's tournament. I know what you're saying, Josh, about you know maybe a problem him having to bear more creative burden. But I think he's taken on that mantle quite well with Real Madrid this season. He scored six goals from midfield this year and quite a few bombs uh, in El Clasico as well. And then you have... Him alongside someone like a, uh, a Rodrigo Bentancur, who really has come into his own now at Spurs. That's that's a good midfield pairing, um, and that's without even mentioning some of the other you know talents they've got up front, even if they're on fumes. Well, I know you want to respond, Josh, but we need to keep these things moving uh, along. Uh, we haven't mentioned Darwin Nunes. Uh, Darwin Nunes, Liverpool. He, he creates he Just creates kidding. chaos. He creates chaos when he's on the pitch. Things happen. He's, he's like Bambi on ice. Is he Uruguay's answer to Garan Kool, is what you're saying? <laughs> Perhaps, but, you know, Garan Kool can trap a ball. <laughs> Nunes, if he shoots first time, he is amazing. If you ask him to do anything beyond but, the first touch... But that pairs perfectly with Valverde. Valverde can shoot if he catches an errant touch from Darwin <laughs> Nunez. Bang! First time. Easy. <laughs> So Fede Valverde shooting into Darwin Nunez is the no 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 wait for his errant touch we're, and then we're hit going that off the ra- we're going second off the rails balls. yeah second, second balls, balls. Second, second balls Warren Joyce is not coaching Uruguay Ghana but imagine <laughs> God somebody tell me something about Ghana uh, there's a lot of selection controversy there's a lot of controversy about players once Ghana had qualified for the World Cup suddenly declaring their eligibility for the Ghanaian national team. Um, Inyaki Williams is a big in, uh, but 
they haven't announced their final squad yet as we record, and there could be some notable misses, um, as reported by the Ghanaian media. Um, Afenia uh, Jan from Roma could be left out, which I think is a mistake. Um, Did his agent come out slamming that? I think that was Jeffrey Schwartz. That was Jeffrey, Jeffrey Again, a mind blowing omission from the site. <laughs> but. Um, uh, I also think it's a mistake to leave out uh, Joseph Paintsell, uh, who's been, uh, by all reports, very promising for for Genk uh, in midfield this season. So that those are the the speculation in the in the media. Um, if you if you read what's online today, those two players are missing out. So it's going to be interesting to see who makes the final cut and what this side actually looks like, because a lot of those players who have declared their eligibility in order to play at the World Cup haven't had a long time to bed in with the team. And whether you stick with the players who got you there to get minutes at the World Cup or whether you bring in these new star names who you suddenly have available is a big dilemma. Well, Lucky, what are you expecting from the Ghanaians? Well, I think, you know, Josh is talking a lot about the sort of murkiness of who's to to be or not to be in the squad. But two people who definitely uh, will be, one of them is, is Thomas Partey, and he's obviously riding off the back of some very impressive form for, for Arsenal off-field things notwithstanding. He's playing very well for his club side and I don't see why he doesn't convert that into into the national team. He's a bit more of a an advanced player within this in this Ghana side and I think if he's firing that they should do quite well. You mentioned two players. Who's the other one? Who is the other one? That's a that's a good question. <laughs> Name. Did I just put you in it? I no, no, no. Hang we on. Can move I, on to no, no, no. I've got it. I've got it okay. here. We can we can cut this. The other player. <laughs> we the can't. Other, we will. Uh, <laughs> no, the we other won't. the other player is uh, Mohamed Kudus from from Ajax, who's been ripping it up in the uh, the Champions League as well as in the uh, the main competition in the Netherlands. So he'll play as the ten. Uh, party will be a bit deeper if those two uh, are connecting well with one another. That will help Ghana. Whether or not it guides them to the knockouts, I think, is another matter altogether. Well, the other team in this group, South Korea, massive scare sent through the entire population of South Korea. I'm not sure how the North felt about it, but uh, when Hyung Min Son's face got broken in the Champions League playing for Spurs, he's going to play, he's put out statements, he's going to have to mask up the Phantom of South Korea. What are, what are we expecting from the Taeguk Warriors? Can they go on as deep a run as possible with a limited Hyung Min Son. Yeah, a huge amount rests on Son's shoulders. And, you know, they, they pulled off upsets in, in 2018, knocking Germany out in memorable fashion, of course, when Manuel Neuer forgot he was a goalkeeper. He does uh, that a lot. But I, I think they're up against it just because this group is so deep. I think, I think they'll bottom out in this group. I don't think they'll finish without a point, but I don't think they're going through. Lucky? Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. I mean, they do have promise. I think at both ends, Hyun Ming Son will will play. And they also have, I I think, not even arguably at this point, the best central defender in Asia, which is Kim Min Jae, currently playing for Napoli. As we said before, everything Napoli Napoli touches seems to turn to gold. Uh, They've got plenty of impressive elements, but I just think, I mean... We're talking about two or three players that are, are making the grade at a, a solid level. You compare that with some of the other sides uh, in this group, particularly the two who are going to go through to the knockouts, and I think yeah, they'll be battling for third with Ghana. I don't think a single Asian team is making it through to the knockout stages. They've all had such tough draws. I don't think Saudi Arabia's going through. Japan are in a tough spot in their group. South Korea with a tough draw. And Australia, you know, we know what we're up against there. So And Qatar. Uh, well, Qatar might be the great white hope <laughs> for Asia. I mean, honestly, 
Honestly, I, I give them a better chance of going through than some of the but other home Asian cooking, nations. Home cooking, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, it worked for South Korea before. It works for Russia. <laughs> yeah, we need, where's that referee? We need to call him up. Oh, somewhere Nick DeBarno shaking his fist. All right, <laughs> predictions time. Portugal, Ghana, Uruguay and South Korea. Who tops this group? Uh, I'm going to go for Uruguay. Uruguay followed by Portugal. Then it'll be Ghana, South Korea to finish last. I am in agreement. I'm going Uruguay to top, Ghana to finish Ooh, second. Wow. The Portuguese to finish third and South Korea to finish fourth. Although I think both Portugal and South Korea will finish on a point each after drawing with each other. Wow, Ronaldo in serious mud. And Warren Joyce to take over Uruguay at the end of the <laughs> tournament. Perfect. <laughs> that is it. We're getting silly. We're, at, we're parachuting Warren Joyce into South American coaching gigs. But that has been all the groups of the National Curriculum's World Cup preview special. Stay tuned for our predictions still to come. And that's it. The groups exhaustively are complete. But don't worry. The slander is not yet closed out because we now have time for predictions where we will of course talk about who will lift the trophy who will win the golden boot who will get the golden ball but also who will stink up the joint the most in Qatar always what we love to hear we've only got the three of us now so we should be able to be extra venomous with this with the extra time that we have but Josh Parrish we'll start with you then go to Lockie and then myself Winners first, winners are grinners. Who wins the World Cup? I think this is Lionel Messi's moment oh. to bow out on a high from international football. And I think Argentina are going to win the World Cup with Diego Maradona's uh, presence from above. In the guiding them, of A guiding Diego hand, Maradona. shall we say. A guiding hand. Oh, I, I know that on this podcast we like to, uh, to barrack for the yarn. So that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to say Argentina will win as well. Messi's tournament, the best narrative but with the added sweetener that he'll do it in the final against Cristiano Ronaldo's Portugal. Oh. <laughs> uh, well, not Sue. No. Uh, no. <laughs> right. I have, it, for me, it's a South American winner. It's mm. either Argentina or Brazil. Uh, don't, fence, don't fence it, Joey. Um, Pick one. Pick one. Argentina. Lionel Messi. Unanimous. Unanimous. Argentina. Lionel Messi seals himself as the GOAT, the greatest of all time. All right, though. Golden boot. Who wins the golden boot? Well, I think if Argentina are going all the way, it's got to be Lionel Messi. I think it'll also be from Argentina, but I'm going to go for Latari Martinez. Okay. I am going... He's going... Back to back, Harry Kane. For, <laughs> but he's got uh, no Panama to beat up on wait, this stuff. Jo- Joey, how can you, you be the, the golden boot when you're only scoring the group stage? I don't, I don't get that. It doesn't make sense to me. Nonsensical. So don't come home <laughs> too soon. Golden ball. Well, I mean, I hate to sound like a broken record here. <laughs> <laughs> Leo is going to do it. Yeah, Leo. Leo. Okay. Leo. All right, here we go. Slander time. Fun stuff. Biggest disappointment of the tournament, Lucky Flanagan. Belgium has to be. I think they crash out in the uh, in the groups, as we've already said. I think it will be Portugal because Cristiano Ronaldo is, at this stage of his career, a debilitative influence on a team, and I think he is going to ruin their chances of being a functional. Or, side. or to put that in layman terms, uh, he's washed. He is indeed. <laughs> to put that in even more base terms. Sure. And also, 
I, I think their back line's really shaky as well, Portugal. I think that they've got all these forward players, wide forwards, attacking midfielders, uh, but they don't function well together. Yeah. And at There's either of- end of the pitch, there are huge problems. So I think uh, if people are predicting, as you have, Lockie, an Argentina-Portugal final, I think it will be Ronaldo's boys who don't hold up their end of the bargain. I'm in concurrence with Josh Parrish, as many might have predicted when in our Group H preview I tipped them to go out in the group stages. Uh, I have the Portuguese and Cristiano Ronaldo as the biggest disappointments of the tournament. So I guess I am predicting, me and Josh are both predicting the end of the endless social media debates. Lionel Messi wins the World Cup while Ronaldo goes out in the group stage. Surely that ends the GOAT debate between those two. I don't think that will dissuade the Ronaldo bots from uh, from spam posting. Shoo! I, th- I, th- I, think, I think you're inciting them now, Joey. Shoo! All right. One last one. Biggest surprise. Biggest, in a good way. Biggest surprise. I, I think Croatia are going to make a deeper run than people expect. Um, I, I don't know if it's a semi-final, but I, I think I think they're going to have a really good tournament. Bef- just make sure I don't get another one of mine stolen. I'm going to go before Lockie, and I'm going to say the Danes are my big surprise. I can see the Danes making a big run. Lockie? Yeah, that that, that was what I was leaning towards. So I'll, I'll, I'll concede. I'll let you have that one. Uh, I'm going it, to... It's not a huge surprise in terms of I don't think this team is necessarily going to make a deep run, uh, but for me, Iran... Into the into the knockouts, uh, maybe upsetting England on the opening opening day. I didn't just say that to trigger you. I do genuinely believe that could happen, and I think once they get to the round of sixteen, maybe they could upset an opponent there too. If they play the Netherlands, if they play the Netherlands, I actually think they could upset them. I also think becoming sad and predictable, Mr. Lucky Flanagan, over the course of this podcast. I also think Ecuador could surprise people because they've got a soft group. I think they're going through in second place as I predicted. Um, I think they're much better than people expect. Well, that has been. TNC special World Cup preview with the help of ESPN and of course Ultra Football, your home of football in both Melbourne and Sydney who have provided us with this fantastic venue today and access to their teleportation device so that we could get Teo Pelizzeri down from Sydney. It's also been amazing to have Anna Harrington of the Far Post podcast join us as well as Kate Gill, the co-chief executive of the PFA. We've been very, very greatly, it's been very greatly appreciated to have access to some of her time today. Throughout the World Cup, ESPN is going to be your home of coverage of it, not just for Australia, but really, we're sending 180 people. It's going to be your, like every team, your home of coverage is going to be on ESPN. I'm going to be on the grounds in Qatar alongside ESPN Australia's Jamie Van Leeuwen. We're going to be bringing you all the action from there with articles, video content. I'll be uploading specials uh, for TNC on the grounds in Qatar. So keep across your uh, subscription feeds for that. We are also going to have daily specials of TNC recorded here in Australia after the last game has concluded, led by Josh Parrish, Lockie Flanagan, and our amazing team, and some of our maybe uh, TNC La Masia graduates as well. We'll be bringing you all the reactions to all the games, news on the Socceroos, previews of the games to come later. That anything. It's going to be big, Josh, isn't it? It's going to be massive. Uh, so keep across your TNC feed and your ESPN feed. Uh, I'm, I'm so looking forward to one match in particular, Joey. We didn't do match of the tournament. 
but Ghana versus Uruguay, oh, I thought the you were rematch. Like say England featuring, it has to be featuring Pakua Frimpong on the reaction pod. That's going to be my highlight. Of you the know pod. what we need? Uh, we need to get like Pakua and Bruno Fornaroli <laughs> just going at each other on that one. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be difficult because we had Kate Gill on. It's going to be difficult because you don't just want to. Everything is awesome, it but. The football, at least, should be very interesting to watch. You looking forward to it, Lockie? Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I would have enjoyed it a lot more if you know a few other teams had been a bit different. But you know, we can only do what we can only do. So uh, yeah, of course. What I'm else we can do? Exactly. Uh, of course. I mean, I'm we do? not the right shirt. Not, not everything was done. I'm not the wearing the. I'm not wearing done. the right shirt for that, Josh. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I'm absolutely looking forward to uh, the games. It's going to be amazing. Italy aren't going to be there, just like Nick Dabano wasn't here today on this preview special. Why would he no show? Why would he not show? But anyway, it's been great to have you with us for this special. Looking forward to keeping your company in Qatar.